0: So how did things go in the Labor 15 team mixed? I'll talk with Joe Sheehan from the Joe Sheehan Baseball Newsletter and Scott Pianowski from Yahoo Sports, next on Baseball HQ Radio.
1: Learn to play the winner's way, because
0: Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. (laughs) And here's your host, from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Tuesday, February 23rd. It's show number seven of the 2021 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have another great Two Tout Tuesday edition for you with two great guests. First, we'll have our feature interview with Joe Sheehan, discussing his draft in the Labour 15 team mix, some observations on the Red Sox and A's, his boons and banes, and even more. And then we'll have our second feature interview with Scott Pianowski from Yahoo Sports discussing his draft and labor mixed, as well as Adalberto Mondesi, Tim Anderson, DJ LeMayhew, his boons and veins, and even more. It's another big Two Tout Tuesday edition. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? Joe Sheehan and Scott Pianowski in the house? We're gonna talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Two Tout Tuesday edition, our first feature expert interview with Joe Sheehan from the Joe Sheehan Baseball Newsletter. Joe, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Seems like it's been forever.
2: I know it has been. I think uh, last time we talked was a entirely different world, actually, Patrick.
0: Wasn't it just? we, we Just before we started this uh, conversation for the podcast, we were talking about the effects that the pandemic has had on all of us and how much we hope that uh, it's not going to affect the baseball season.
2: Yeah, And right now it looks like they're going to get, you know, the exhibition season started off later this weekend. And uh, I I think it's going to be by the end of the year, a pretty normal season. Uh, We'll see if we have some bumps along the way early on. But, you know, a lot of people are optimistic here in the States that uh, life will be back to normal sometime in the summer.
0: Well, the summer will help because it's a wintertime thing like the flu is what uh, I understand. And second of all, the vaccine rollout as clumsy and awkward as it has often been will start to get its feet under it. I mean, it's a very large, complex process like here in Canada where we have federal interests and provincial interests sometimes competing. You guys have federal interests and state interests sometimes at loggerheads and not able to coordinate very well. But I think, you know, like like any big, huge, enterprise, it'll get sorted out. You know, I I just read a book about D-Day and at first it wasn't that well organized, but you know what? They made it work eventually.
2: Well, I'm not sure we could pull off D-Day today, but
0: (laughs) it's probably a conversation
2: for a different podcast.
0: Yeah, exactly right. A few years ago we were talking and you were kind of pulling back from fantasy baseball as part of your baseball life. And now I see you're a little bit more into it. We'll talk about that in a second, but how are you integrating fantasy into your baseball life these days?
2: uh last year uh you know i played labor for the second straight year and actually played in a couple of uh best balls with some friends in the shortened season i really enjoyed that format so doing more of that this year um i again i'm in the mix i was in the mixed labor draft last week doing some best balls now with uh, newsletter subscribers been having those running i believe i'm running the second one right now about to launch the third and it's just a way to kind of get to know the player pool and i like the format because it is low stress i as much as I enjoy labor, you know, I don't know if I have the, the stomach to do like eight, you know, transaction, you know, eight leagues worth of transactions on a Sunday night anymore. I love the low stress format of of the best ball. So I'm doing a few of those. Um, and then, you know, I, I probably won't play. I played some strat tournaments last year. I probably won't do that. Oh, and the other thing I'm doing this week is we've got a keeper deadline in my uh, my L score sheet league. I have a, a partner, a longtime subscriber that we've, uh, we've had a team in that league for I don't know, six or seven years now and we've gone into it we went into a rebuild and we're coming out of it so it's a different set of decisions which is nice it used to be you know, you know can we even get to 13 keepers and now you know we've got 16 guys we like plus the rookie list so um that's been a lot of fun kind of working on that this
0: week what have you seen as far as uh, trends in drafting uh, i suppose in addition to pitching going higher than ever
2: I kind of feel like and I know that there's an idea that you really want to build around getting a Cole or DeCrom or you know early on I, I just in looking at the pool and this was evident in the labor draft that we'll discuss shortly I really feel like there's a lot more pitching out there than we think there is um and that it was only going to be addition if the, if the ball is actually dead in this year that's only going to enhance that I kept going down my list in the early to middle rounds after those first three rounds and there were just pitcher after pitcher that I really thought was going to help my team so you know, I understand the idea that you want to anchor with one of those top two, or you know, maybe even make sure you get Trevor Bauer or somebody like that. But I just I feel like there's a lot more pitching than we're giving it credit for. Now, some of that is I'm not looking at saves very much. You know, I I, I read a wrote a big thing earlier this winter about you know the closer, the trends in closers. Um, so once you're just not only looking for skills, once you're not really worried that much about getting saves, you kind of look at some of those second-tier starters and they really start to look good. And you start to look at the relievers who maybe aren't slated to get saves right now and they start to look a lot better to you. So I was really happy with how much pitching was available. Um, On the flip side, and particularly with this early draft, we drafted in labor, I want to say it was the 16th. I think it was a week ago tonight. um, Because playing time is still yet to be distributed in a lot of ways, uh, coming off the short season, rookies didn't establish themselves for the most part last year. Uh, We we don't have minor league stats to go off to figure who's going to take a job. They're just a lot of. There's still, you know, a decent number of free agents out there who might claim playing time. Um, I had a hard time sussing out the position players I want to take right in the draft. So I think that will obviously change as as camps get going and we start to see some exhibition games. But um, I thought the depth in the depth in pitching, especially starters, and the difficulty in figuring out you know what position players I wanted to take on the margins were the two things that jumped out at me.
0: Well, you mentioned uh, that you participated in the Labor Draft last week. It's a 15-team mixed snake draft. I'll be talking with Scott Pianowski later about that same draft. He was in it with you. Uh, You guys were at opposite ends of the draft. He was second. You were 14th. How do you like the wheel slot like that, and uh, how did you prepare for it?
2: Well, you know, I was going to take Mookie Betts, and he just didn't get to me. So (laughs) I was a little surprised by that. Um, I would have preferred the direct wheel. I think you can do some things with the wheel that you can't do with the faux wheel. Um, But I was pretty happy with the way it turned out. Uh, I wanted to double up. So two two hitters or two pitchers, and it was highly unlikely it was going to be two pitchers given the way the player pool goes at that point. Um, And at the time it got to me at 14, there were basically four hitters, Bellinger, Freeman, Lindor and Harper that I knew I was going to be able to get two of. Um, And I ended up with Bellinger and Harper, which you know, for 14 is about as happy as, as I can be. I mean, I think Harper is the last hitter on that tier. Um, and so to be able to get two of those top guys, I was very, very happy with. Um, and, you know, it's there weren't, I was able to take two starters. I did a a Wheeler-Hendricks turn at one point that, you know, I was pretty happy to get those two guys. But for the most part, after uh, maybe six rounds, I'm not even that aware of uh, of it being the turn, I guess I would say. I know I've got Fred on my left, which is just, you know, Fred's not going to make any mistakes. So if I want a guy going in, i got to make sure I get him because Fred's going to be there to snap up uh, any any mistakes I make. Um, and that was, I think, as much, as much as anything else. I was just very conscious of having Fred Zinke on my left there.
0: Well, you mentioned that you had four guys that you were looking at and you knew you were going to get two of them. Uh, but you did take Cody Bellinger over Lindor and uh, by inference also over Freddie Freeman. Why was Bellinger the top choice? You had the top choice of those four guys. Why was he your top choice of those four guys?
2: I think Bellinger's true talent level is his 2019 season. I think that he's got that 45-homer potential that uh, neither Freeman nor Lindor actually have. Um, I think he can hit for a higher average than he showed. Uh, just, I am just, I love the raw talent. Uh, as far as versus Lindor, I actually I think if I look at the top 100 I did, I probably do have Lindor ahead of Bellinger. And honestly, it came down to this. The last two years in labor, I've taken Lindor. And it was, let's just do something different. I mean, when you're, I just didn't want to run the same play again. I could have taken Lindor, probably ended up with Harper and had roughly the same team. But you know, I had Lindor consecutive years. Um, let's let's just do, let's run a different trick. Um, I think that between the two of them, you can justify the one. Obviously, Lindor is a positional value. probably run a little bit more. Uh, we'll see what happens with the move to, to City Field. You know, that's not maybe not the, the – it's a moderate hitter's park um, downgrade from, from Cleveland. Neither one of them was a great hitter's park. Um, so we'll see what happens there. But I, I – a lot of it was just Patrick, hey, let's not do the thing we've done two years running.
0: I was wondering when I saw the pick whether uh, the, the depth at shortstop might have been a factor because unlike most years, we kind of grow up in this game and we think that there's first baseman plenty all over the place and you can always get one, but the shortstops are hard to find. And of late, uh, that hasn't been the case. Was that a factor?
2: It was a factor, I think, in Lindor being available at 14. In a typical, you know, it, to, to use the, the point you're making here, you typically you'd be like, oh, shortstop with Lindor's numbers, that guy has to be a top six, top seven pick. Um, and that's just not the way the depth of the pool is right now. There's a lot more uh, shortstops and MIs and the you know first base can be a bit of a grind to fill. So it wasn't really, it didn't, it wasn't a factor in me taking Bellinger versus Lindor, but I think it was a factor in that even being a choice of having that choice available to me.
0: You also drew up a list of players you wouldn't take. And you talked about the whole idea of drafting a pitcher early and the biggest name in your list uh, at Bellinger, Uh, Joshian's newsletter was Jacob deGrom. You said there wasn't much chance he was going to fall to you at 14, so it wasn't like you were going out on a limb. But if he had, you said you wouldn't even have taken him. Why not? Yeah, I'm down on, not down on deGrom from a performance standpoint.
2: I'm a little worried about volume. Um, You look at the last couple of years. I mean, last year, 12 starts, but he had a back thing. He had a neck thing, hamstring. Go back to 2019, there was a hip issue, an elbow issue. I don't necessarily think he's going to blow out. I, I don't think it's like, you know, you look at Syndergaard, you know, we could probably both make a list of five guys we expect to to walk off the, the mound holding their elbow at some point this year. But this is more, he's getting up there in years. He's had these little nagging injuries. I think the Mets are probably going to be planning for a seven-month season this year, so they're going to want to manage him a little bit, plus coming off the the shortened season. I. It's not that I think DeGrom's going to be bad. It's that I think he's going to throw 25 starts. And that, to me, is the separator at the top. I just didn't want to be taking a 25-start starter.
0: I don't know uh, what deGrom's history is, but I've been looking at the life cycle, if you will, of pitchers who start in the major leagues a little older than some of their peers. It seems like the young guys have a disproportionate share of pitcher injuries, especially arm injuries. Uh, And I wonder, does deGrom fit into any Injury risk category based on the fact that he was a little later getting to the major leagues, even though he's a little older now. Maybe his 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 uh, durability might be uh, affected positively by the fact he hasn't been pitching in the big leagues since he was you know 22.
2: Degrom actually had Tommy John, I want to say, as a prospect. So he's kind of already been pre-disaster, to use Corey Schwartz's term. Um, so I am not sure that the I mean, if it, his major league debut was delayed because of the injuries, so I'm not sure it necessarily makes him any safer. Um, I will say that once you've had Tommy John, that kind of takes, I want to say there's a 10 year cycle there. Um, and I'd have to check with Will Carroll to be honest with you. Um, but I believe once you've had it, like you're considered reasonably safe for about 10 years. So it's not, again, a blowout type injury I'm looking for here. It's just, it, there's all of these nagging owies that might have popped up that I think are going to affect his, uh, his volume this year.
0: A couple of middle infielders that are going fairly high in drafts that you are out on DJ LeMayhu and Adalberto Mondesi, who has become this season's hot take inspiration. Why not these two guys?
2: Yeah, DJ is 33. He's a 6'4, 222nd baseman, which has made him a bit of a unicorn. Um he hasn't he's definitely lost his speed, which is oh, both effects, you know, running stats that you might get from him and also as an indicator of aging. Uh, if again, if the baseball is even just a little bit I didn't factor this in as a big thing but for guys whose power I don't completely trust, it was an issue um, if the baseball's altered at all what has happened to those opposite field home runs in Yankee Stadium Um, it, it's a lot of little things and again, it's, I would say it's similar to DeGrom that it's no one red flag it's the age, it's the size it's the possibility of the baseball being altered so I knocked him down a few notches Um, and then <sighs> Patrick, there's one problem. Uh, That's the wrong word. There's one challenge I've had playing road history over the years. It's my inability to separate real baseball evaluation from the things you have to look at in in terms of winning at Roto. And I think Mondesi is probably the best example this year. He's a 284 career OBP, 306 is career high, um, six to one strikeout to walk ratio last year. And that was in a good year. Um, I, I just, I can't, and I can't, I can't invest in a player who could very much well strike his strike out his strike out his way out of the league, with his way out of the league. There we go, with his way out of the league. Um, so yeah, I mean obviously the power and the speed that he's shown. I saw somebody said he was maybe the best player in the American League in September, and that's great. But I I think over a six month season, the strikeout to walk ratio is just going to eat everything else.
0: Yeah, and that makes sense because the pitchers are not unaware of the fact that this guy likes to swing and what he likes to swing at, and he seems exact like the poster child for here's a guy who's going to be the victim of pitcher adjustments, pretty much yep. for his entire career. And I've read analysis, and I didn't disagree that said Adelbert Mondesi could be in Triple A if he if he continues to you know ring up a two sixty five or two eighty on base percentage, it's just killing his team.
2: Right, and I think that's his. That's likely enough that, you know, again, in your first few rounds, you can't win the draft, but you can lose it. And if you take a player who loses his job on May 15th, that's a really good way to lose your draft early. So Montessi was just, Montessi was, DJ LeMay, who if he slips in the draft, he's going to end up on my team. Jacob deGrom, if it's a weird draft, you know, and if I'd have been drafting maybe 10th or so and he slipped me, he would have been on my team. But Adebato Montessi was pretty much never going to be on my team.
0: Well, he's definitely a guy this year. I'll be talking, as I mentioned, to Scott Pianowski later. He thinks Ed Alberta Mondesi is being grossly underrated, so he's certainly the kind of guy who generates a lot of opinions. Uh, you had two Blue Jays on your pass list in uh, your Labor article at the Sheehan Baseball Newsletter. Kevin Biggio and Teoscar Hernandez are both getting support from touts and in the ADPs. Why are you fading those two guys? Yeah,
2: I think the walk rates are real with Kevin Biggio, and he's somebody who could maybe you know steal ten bases because he's got he's got that skill where it's like he's not a great terribly fast guy, but he's a good percentage dealer. But I just uh, you know I, I my friend Keith Law over at the Athletic has always been talking about the bat speed just not really being there, and uh, he's somebody who I think is probably going to hit closer to two thirty and with closer to, say, a 200 uh, ISO, as opposed to maybe a 250 or a 300 ISO. So, uh, to me, Bichio, everything has to kind of fall correctly for him to be uh, a contributor. and I just don't think it's going to be there. I just don't think the bat is actually going to be there. It's a pretty simple uh, equation. As far as uh, Hernandez, he's a rabbit ball guy for me. Um, take something out of the baseball, and all of a sudden, he's a you know 245, 295, 440 hitter. Um, plus, I think there, there's going to be a bit of a Chase for playing time. Um, right now, it looks like Hernandez goes into camp with the job. But, I mean, they've got a lot of outfielders, and it wouldn't surprise Plus, you know, corner guys like Rowdy who have sort of kind of been squeezed out of a job. Um, it wouldn't surprise me at all to see him in a part-time role.
0: Yeah, they've got a situation in Toronto, I think, where a slow start by anybody could mean bench time because right. they do have options. And I'll tell you what, I've mentioned this before on the show, but Rowdy Tellez is a guy that everybody should be targeting. He changed his entire approach last year under the tutelage of uh, Dante Bichette, who's not the hitting coach there, but he's kind of the hitting guru that a lot of these players have come to. And boy, check out his swinging strike rates, his in-zone, out-of-zone strikes uh, and takes. It's quite a remarkable turnaround. And he had a really good uh, season last year. You got sniped three different ways at the next wheel. You had, <laughs> this was, uh, I'm sorry, I'm laughing. I feel your pain, but you had Corey Seeger, Nolan Arenado, and George Springer as your cue. And uh, with 45 seconds to go, they were all gone. And you had to make your move, so you landed on Vladimir Guerrero Jr. Speaking of Jays, why Vlad, considering his underwhelming Major League Fantasy career so far?
2: Yeah, that was not a very pleasant moment for me. Because you figure with, if you've got three names and four guys to your pick, you're pretty confident you're going to get one of them. And you know, I, too, boy, that was, that, that hurt. Uh, Vlad was, obviously, you know, when you're in that situation, you only have 45 seconds to make a pick. Vlad, to me, was then the last hitter on that tier for me. I'm a huge Vlad fan coming into this year. I know it seems like he hasn't hit all that well, but you look at it, he's 21 years old last year. A 38 to 19 strikeout to walk ratio, which is you know, for a 21-year-old. I mean, I know we're, we're, we've been spoiled, right? Trout earlier in the decade, and then, you know, Cunha more recently, Juan Soto, these players who come up and they're dominant at 20. But you know, I'll take Vlad's bat-to-ball skills along with everything else. Um, and, and he's setting aside even, like, the best shape of his life stuff that we saw last fall. I mean, I just think that he's going to come and finally, that he's going to be a legitimate 315 hitter with all kinds of power. Um, he's The ground ball rate simply has to go down it, I could be wrong about this. If he turns up and he just keeps pounding the ball into the ground, obviously this pick isn't going to work out. But I think he starts lifting the ball this year and has a monster season. So that, I wasn't happy to land Vlad there because I had, you know, I thought there was a fall off on the other three, but I'm not terribly upset.
0: I've heard some concern about Vlad Guerrero potential. Um people who are targeting Vlad Guerrero or or thinking about targeting him is the launch angle thing you mentioned and the argument seems to be it's not easy to change the launch angle or your swing plane and if anybody can, I think he can, but are you at all concerned about that um, very real possibility that he's going to want to try to loft the ball but just isn't going to be able to because he's grooved a swing that uh, doesn't do that?
2: Well, I mean, I think the lessons of the last, what, five or six years are that players can change. I mean, the entire Launch Ego revolution is guys like Justin Turner deciding, nope, I'm going to swing differently now. J.D. Martinez, Max Muncie. I mean, you got a whole raft of players who went out one offseason as a ground ball hitter and came back as a fly ball hitter. So um, I think, I don't think it's easy. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm a 49-year-old guy talking from his couch. Uh, but I think we've got a lot of examples of players who, if they decide to change their swing, they can do it. And I'll bet on the talent. Of a Guerrero. And again, he doesn't have to, he doesn't have to radically change his launch angle. I mean, yeah, he, he, to take a ground ball rate of 45% and drop it to 40. And that's, you know, another, I can do math, uh, 50 balls in the air a year. I'm sorry. Uh, that's another 25 balls in the air a year. That's a lot of balls. in the. it's a lot of extra balls in the air.
0: And with his bat speed, uh, even a handful of extra balls in the air is almost sure to lead to good fantasy results. Uh, I like his chances too, just because even as a 17-year-old, we started getting film of him. Uh, after he signed with Toronto at 18 years old, and and uh, gosh, he just generates so much bat speed, and he has such great bat to ball skills. Like the hand eye coordination is off the charts, and that gives me confidence that, as you said, if anybody can do the launch angle change, the swing plane change, I think he could be the guy.
2: I also think there's a very high floor with Vlad. Um, he's going to play, uh, even if you know in the worst case scenario is probably a 280 hitter. With with the volume, with the middle of that lineup is going to enable them to produce runs and RBIs. So again, I even the downside risk with Vlad isn't really all that great. I'm going to get a certain number of baseline stats, and going with the first two guys I got, I really felt like that anchored the offense.
0: I thought you did really well, Joe, when you started your pitching rotation at the five-six turn with Zach Wheeler and Kyle Hendricks. Uh, I like these guys. What do you like about them?
2: I was really surprised that they were both still there um, That that because I knew at that point when I needed two starters. For me, and again, it's the high floor thing. I know that there are two guys who are going to take the ball you know, 30 times to the extent that anybody does this year. Um, Hendricks, obviously not a big strikeout guy, but bigger than you think based on the raw stuff. Um, he's had a lot of success as a low-velocity right-handed starter. Um, I, it took me a long time to buy into him. I God, I remember Cubs fans screaming at me about Hendricks, but um, he's made it work now. Eventually, that trick event you know fades out, but when you have plus plus command, everything else kind of falls to that. So I was happy to get Hendricks to six. Wheeler obviously is a greater strikeout bet. Uh, maybe uh, not as good for an ERA call. Plus, you know, p- pitching uh, in that ballpark, maybe that's not going to help his numbers too much. But uh, that's a lineup too where. You know, if they're as good as I think they are, that could be a source of wins. Um, that's always, you know, it's, it's harder to get wins now. Pitchers don't pitch as deep into games. Bullpens, obviously the Phillies last year blew 423 leads in a 60-game season. Um, so there was some risk there. They, they've made some investments in the bullpen. They've got Joe Girardi, who I'm a big fan of, running that pen. So um, I think between those two guys, you know, that's you know 28 wins, 340 strikeouts, um, you know, an ERA of you know, 3-3 and a whip of maybe 1-1, uh, maybe a little higher. Uh, I just, again, it's I, got, I was able to floor, provide a baseline floor. And I took Snell in the fourth round. So, you know, I should get some strikeouts out of that too. So, yeah, through six rounds, I was pretty happy.
0: And I think strikeout percentages can be a bit misleading in a case like Hendricks because he's such a big innings guy that even if you – think his strikeout percentage is not going to match some of his other peers, the fact that he's going to throw 25 or 30 more innings than a lot of them is going to more than make up the difference as far as strikeouts are concerned. He's had 160, I think, 150, 160 the last two years, 170 a few years before that. I think that uh, it, it seems not only likely, but, uh, but really likely that Kyle Hendricks could be a strikeout contributor just based on the fact that he throws a lot of innings.
2: Yeah, volume matters, and right now in the National League, you know, really in the majors, he's as high a volume guy as we have, um, and that's that's something I was looking for with those two picks. So no, I I'm I'm happy with them. And like I say, there's when you have a right-handed starter who throws with as low velocity as he does, you are stepping into a little bit of risk. There's always a chance that this is the year that the Babbit blows up, and it just it, I mean we we see be a lot of low velocity pitchers where that happens. Um, hopefully, this won't be the year that that happens for him though.
0: Yeah, I like the uh, idea of the crafty veteran too. You know that there there are there are pitchers who succeed without dominating stuff because they know what they're doing out there, and and they set up hitters. You think of Greg Maddox was never thought of as a super dominating guy, but he was a super effective guy because he knew what he was doing on the mound.
2: Yeah, and and like I'd say that plus plus command with Hendricks is incredibly <laughs> invaluable.
0: After those guys, you added three more high ceiling starting pitchers, Jesus Luzardo, Julio Arias, and Sixto Sanchez. You said in your article you were happy to get Luzardo, and you were okay with Sanchez because of the context of the draft at the point. But in hindsight, you said taking Arias you thought was something between suboptimal and an outright mistake. Uh, What did you mean?
2: I had too many pitchers. Um, and looking around i needed to get another position player at that point uh that's where i thought i made my first real mistake uh and again i love arise and I, I just that's it really this was again continuing to try to take the best player available and i was continuing to do that with Lazardo, with sanchez it's just hey, at that point i needed to take a step back look at the player pool look at what i had and maybe invest more in a position player and that was there were one or two spots in the draft, as we'll go on here, um, where I made that mistake, where I didn't prioritize getting at-bats instead of just taking the best available player. Uh, and that's that's what I meant by that. I, I'm i happy to have Arias, but I needed a hitter there.
0: At the 15-16 turn, you grabbed a couple of very high-ceiling but riskier picks in Gavin Lux and Wander Franco. Uh, Lux, of course, with Justin Turner resigning, might be looking around trying to figure out where he's going to play. And Wander Franco, if the Tampa gets off to a slow start, might not be in any hurry to get his service clock started. What were you thinking as the draft started towards its denouement with uh, Lux and Franco?
2: Yeah, this was before Turner signed, which was uh, something you could see coming. But even that, that I look at Lux, as, I still think like he's going to be the second baseman. Um, Hernandez, they're down Hernandez, they're down Jock Peterson. There's going to be a lot of playing time available. Um, and, I, you know, Lux obviously got off to a terrible start last year. He was left off the the, the opening day roster, just a lost season. You go back and you look at the talent that made him Baseball America's Player of the Year a couple of years ago. Um, made him, a, you know, had that great debut in 2019. Uh, I think the talent will win out here, and he's going to be a he's going to get most of the playing time at second base, to the extent that anybody with the Dodgers is likely to get the most playing time at a position. Him and Seeger are the two I think uh, uh, are, are most likely to to be the most common double play combination there. So uh, I'm pretty happy with the Lux pick. I think it'll work out, even with the Turner signing. Franco was. Yeah, let's make the splashy gamble here. Um, if you don't think he's going to get called up until July or so, this is probably a wasted pick. But when you look at the raw talent, you look at the fact that they had him on the playoff taxi squad last year. Like He was around, and if there had been an injury or two, he might have actually gotten into a playoff game. They know he's ready for the major leagues. So could I see uh, 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 service time manipulation that keeps him down for a little bit? Yes. But I'm pretty optimistic about how quickly he makes it to the majors.
0: You called getting Blake Trinan in the twentieth round a steal. How come?
2: I just don't think Kellen Ganslin's gonna get the saves. Um and I think that, you know, the combination of saves experience, uh his yeah, experience in the closer role and that raw stuff. I mean, you know, by the end of last year he had that little slider working again. The one that had made him such a great pitcher in two thousand eighteen. Um and I was you know, I, I think that he's somebody who uh, you know, could step in again if, if you're blowing off closers like I am. If you're blowing off saves and saying saves are just then you're saying, give me skills and opportunity. And I think Trinan is I don't know if he's the best pitcher in that bullpen, um, but I think he's a combination of best stuff and most likely to be named the closer. Dave Roberts likes his capital C closer. So if he does go away from Jansen, which again, I think it's going to, I think it's inevitable that's going to happen, he's going to want to pick one guy. So trying to be is the most likely uh, name in that pen to, to get the job.
0: You didn't take any third baseman during the draft, so you got uh, Nolan Jones, I think, in the very last pick of a six-round reserve. You had a sneaky reason to toss that coin. What did you like about Nolan Jones?
2: Well, it was, you know, when you look at the third baseman who were available, I think maybe Mike Franco was there and some others. But, you know what, I just assumed let's take somebody who makes my team legal. I didn't have any third baseman at that point. And just wait five weeks and see how the playing time shakes out. And we do a there's a fab before the season starts, so I will have the opportunity to go out and get a third base um, who is actually playing on opening day. I don't think Jones is going to make the opening day Indians roster. Although you know there are some people who really love him as an offensive option. He's obviously not going to play third with Jose Ramirez there. Um, he could get some reps in the outfield. Could arguably squeeze into a first base spot if he learns that position. Um, I and again that's a thing where I don't think he's going to make the team out of spring training. But there's a reasonable chance that you know, he'll be called up early. I mean, we've seen the Indians. They've had such trouble filling out their lineup. They've always, they've typically had four good hitters and then a disaster. Um, and Jones is a legitimate power back. So I don't think – if I had to guess, I'll probably have to cut him before he gets called up. I'm just going to need the roster spot. I'm going to need the playing time on somebody else. But there's the combination of placeholder, while I see how playing time shakes out at third base around the league, and at least the chance that he goes to camp and wins a job.
0: Labor, uh, unlike a lot of experts' leagues, does allow trading. How much did that factor into your decision making?
2: Well, it certainly means I can do things like punt saves and you know see how what happens as the year goes on. Um, any league with Fred Zinke in it, this trading is going to be an option. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's always dangerous making a trade with Fred, though, because you know if Fred's trying to make a trade with you, you really gotta wonder what uh, what you're not seeing uh but i will say that you know i usually i think i made two year two trades two years ago um one of which i thought were, was i was pretty happy with the other one didn't work out that well i don't think i made a single trade last year but of course it was a nine-week season so you know I, i'm somebody who i won't propose a ton of trades but i'm always receptive and i always try to be a good trade partner in that you know okay sure fine you want bellinger you know, or should say yeah, yeah, yeah. I try to I try not to be a jerk in trades. I don't know if the consensus will be, but um uh, it's good to have that option. It's so it's certainly something I'm looking at when you know I mentioned all that pitching that I took. I took the six straight starting pitchers. Um if I'm right on those six, I'm going to need to be able to trade some of that value for the hitters I didn't take.
0: You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Joe Sheehan from the Joe Sheehan Baseball Newsletter. And Joe, in the February 19th edition of the newsletter, you discussed the Red Sox and you said they're not going to be as bad as a lot of pundits make them out to be. What's your overview of uh, the Boston situation?
2: Well, they just, they're not, when you have a core, you know, Bogart, Stevers, Verdugo, you know, two thirds of a season of sale and uh, Eduardo Rodriguez, it just, your floor is high. I mean, that's a championship caliber core. Well, maybe a, it's, a, it's a contending core at the very least. Um, And this is one of the problems with trading Mookie Betts from the start, which is that you're, you're just not going to be bad enough to go into a rebuild. And the argument for not trading Betts was, look, you've got a championship team right now. Why, why mess with that? Um, I don't want to, I really don't want to relitigate that, but it, you can't, address the 2021 Red Sox without addressing what it might have looked like the Betts instead of Verdugo. So um I, they're just not going to be that bad. Now, they're the third best team in the division. They're probably the fourth best team in that division. I, I think they're closer to the Blue Jays than you might think. I think the Yankees and Rays are separated from them a bit. But could you see a scenario where I mean, this is the year that Nathan Ivaldi and Garrett Richards stay healthy? And I know that's a crazy thought, but you know, maybe this is the year those two guys stay healthy and on the mound. Maybe the you know the, they find something in the bullpen. You know, maybe Tanner Houck had those three starts at the end of last year. Maybe he's the real thing. I mean, I can create an upside scenario for the Red Sox that I can't for a lot of teams in that middle tier of MLB. So, uh, were they to expand the playoffs this year, and I'm still concerned that they're going to find a way to do that? Um, if you were to have eight teams in the AL playoffs, I think the Red Sox make the playoffs. If it's, in, if it's just going to be five, I have a really hard time seeing them beating out some combination of the Rays, Jays, and then whoever finishes second in the, uh, in the AL Central.
0: You said the Sox are in a weird place, that they aren't bad enough to tank, but they're electing not to be good enough to contend, and that's not the answer. Where does that leave them?
2: Well, I think you play out this year. You know, you're Chris Sale healthy. Remember, you still have him under contract 2025. So hopefully he gives you 100 innings this year. That gives him a floor for building onto in 2022. Um, right now they've got about $120 million in payroll next year. Um, that gives you the, the opportunity, it should create the opportunity to add two star level players, one of whom could be a starting pitcher. Max Scherzer's a free agent at the end of this year. He's somebody who would fit on the 2022 Red Sox. But you really got to look at that 2022 team and say, hey, look, we've got Bogarts who has an opt out after the year. Um, we've got Devers, Sale, Rodriguez. Um, some hopefully some of these young pitchers coming through. You think about the rookies, Tristan Casas, uh, Jaron Duran could be uh, on the roster by then. I mean, this could be a very good team in 2022. If they're willing to go out and add the one or two missing starters or starter, uh, maybe by then you'll get a second baseman. I mean, they signed Kike Hernandez, but I like him as a utility guy more than a, an everyday second baseman. Um, I, I think you kind of just accept this year as kind of the second year of the, we traded Mookie bets and now what do we do? With an eye towards 2022 being a year you can actually contend.
0: Veering off a of fantasy for a second, Joe, I wonder what you made of the uh, – the pattern of free agent signings this year, there's a lot of one-year deals that were issued, sometimes for pretty good players, but nobody was uh, going long-term. And I wonder if that plays into Boston's plan for 2022, that they can afford to spend some money without committing to a long-term strategy.
2: Yeah, this is a messed up market because of the pandemic. Teams not making money last year, teams unsure as to how much money they're going to be able to make this year. Um the one-year deals I think also reflect the CBA negotiations that will be happening. We'll be playing under some kind of different rule set next year. How different is remains to be seen, but you know, I think teams kind of wanted to clear the keep the decks a little bit clear and see what would happen next year. We know that the for example, the luxury tax threshold hasn't really kept pace with revenues. So, if that goes up significantly, you know that's going to create some opportunities for teams to spend money. Um, our teams is the free agency threshold going to change? Is uh, the in, in other words, if you all of a sudden say we're going to let players become free agents after five years of service time, how does that affect teams having to spend money when they thought they were going to have guys for an extra year? So, I think there are a lot of unknowns going into twenty twenty two that affected the market this year.
0: In your newsletter a little earlier, you looked at the A's, and again, the punditry sees disaster after they lost Liam Hendricks, Marcus Semien, Robbie Grossman, not so much maybe, but still a, a cog. But again, you're more optimistic about the A's than most people are. What do you like about this team? Yeah,
2: they they spent a lot of, well, I thought of is the wrong term, but you know, they built, they bolstered that bullpen a lot. I mean, they lost Hendricks, but when you look at some of the moves, Kolarik, uh Pettit. Sergio Romo, you know, it gives Bob Belvin a lot of weapons. Now, he's not going to have, he's not going to get innings out of that rotation. I love Jose Jesus Lizardo. He's somebody who might be a seven-inning starter now, finally. But, you know, uh, A.J. Puck got hurt. Frankie Montes has really been a five, six-innings guy. Uh, The rest of that rotation is really a five-inning rotation. But you give him eight or nine relievers. um, And I think you, you know, the the pitchers who were very good for him last year, you know uh, j b Wendelkin, uh, Lou Trevino, I, I think he's got a, a lot of guys and Melvin, to me is a big part of the thing. Melvin has done a really good job with anonymous relievers getting good work out of you know, whether it's you know low profile veterans like Pettit who's been you know in that uh, bullpen for a while or you know these fairly anonymous guys like Wendelkin. it's you know, Melvin has a strength of getting the most out of the, that bullpen. And he's also brought along young players, you know For the longest time, the A's didn't get anything from the draft. It was a real problem. They were building these, you know, they trade and free agency and kind of cobble together rosters. And now they finally brought along talent, whether it's Chapman, whether it's Olsen. We saw Sean Murphy last year. He had those big home runs in the playoffs. You know, give Melvin a lot of credit for what he's done, both with all these different types of players, whether it's, you know, street free agents, whether it's young top end prospects i I just can't say enough for the work that melvin's done in an incredibly different difficult situation remember whether you think they should or not the a's put less into their team than any team in baseball and melvin has taken whatever they've given him and turned it into a winning team
0: yeah as a matter of fact i think you you said in the article that he He's actually outdone both Dusty Baker and Joe Madden, who are media darlings and everybody loves them because they always seem to be winning. But oftentimes they've been winning with some pretty good teams. I mean Madden, uh, of course, in Tampa didn't have huge resources, but he was all right in Chicago for the time uh, that he was there, and he's going to be all right in Los Angeles. You mentioned an outfielder who's probably way off anybody's radar screen, and these are the kind of guys I like to look at. Uh, his name is Kai Tom, K A apostrophe A I, and then his last name is Tom. His full name is actually Blaze Ka'ai Tom. He's a Hawaiian guy, drafted in the fifth round in 2015 by Cleveland, and the A's uh, picked him up on waivers in this offseason. Give us the dope on Ka'ai Tom. Why did he catch your eye?
2: You know, uh, they had the roster space to keep him. It's not a deep bench, and if the A's if want to hold on to a row five hitter, he could fit left handed batter, small guy. He's listed at 5'9, so he's probably, you know, 5'2 given the way these things happen in baseball. Um, if you remember Benny Agbayani, the uh, old Mets hitter from the turn of the century, um, he's somebody who kind of look and say, hey, look, here's another you know Hawaiian who can hit a little bit. Um, yeah, he was never really a prospect at all in the Indian system. Advanced, he, he hit, obviously, like everybody last year. He, he lost a year of development. Um, he's older. I want to say he's 28. Um, he's up there. and Even now, in the A system, he doesn't rank among their top 30 prospects. But he's somebody who can go to camp. Get a bench back. I mean, right now the A's don't have a DH essentially. Um, they, they're they really missing that. And he could go in and win that job. So, you know, Tony Kemp's in the mix, Seth Brown's in the mix. You know, we'll see if Chad Pinder gets a second base job. But I, I just, I, it, it. one rule five guy. I mean, most rule five guys who stick now are just live arms in the bullpen. This could be a rule five hitter who actually sticks. I know the Red Sox held on to Jonathan and Ruse for all of last year, in the shortstop. But I mean, Tom could actually step into a lineup and, and do a little bit of damage. So it's just a name to remember. Like I said, he might, by the time this podcast comes out, they might've already sent him, sent him away. But I think right now he's, he's an interesting name.
0: Yeah. When you, when I read it in your newsletter, Joe, I immediately went to baseballreference.com and looked him up and yeah, he's got a little pop for a little guy and uh, steals some bases. Although uh, gets caught a fair amount, uh, gets caught a fair amount as well. And, when you mention that the guys standing in front of him appear to be Tony Kemp and Seth Brown, it's not exactly like he's trying to fight his way into the twenty-seven Yankees.
2: No, the opportunity is as much a thing as anything else. So, as with these guys, you know, really, it'll come down to the, you know, the twenty at bats they get in the first week of spring training. Um, it's not always the most fair way to to settle a roster spot. But now, I, I, we talked about this with Nolan Jones earlier. You know, you, you catch a couple of fastballs on the right day with the right guys watching, and all of a sudden you've got a job. So I, I think Tom's interesting. in In a time, remember, I go back, they changed the Rule 5 rules maybe 10 years ago, and it made the Rule 5 pool just a lot less interesting. So, anytime you can find somebody in the Rule 5 draft who's a little bit interesting, it's fun.
0: You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Joe Sheehan from the Joe Sheehan Baseball Newsletter. And Joe, as you know, I like to wrap up these discussions with some boons and banes. These are players you think are going to help their fantasy teams or hurt them. Uh, Let's start with the boons, guys you think will provide some value in the coming season in the American League. Who's a hitter who could be a boon?
2: I'm going to go back to a name we talked about earlier. I, I think Vladimir Guerrero Jr. is going to be a top five, top six guy in the MVP voting this year. Uh, I think the the bat to ball skills, the incredible exit velocity that he gets. I think I look at him and I see Gary Sheffield. People will see his dad. I see Gary Sheffield. I see somebody who's going to hit just absolute rockets uh, over the left field fence. Um, those kind of home runs that you can just hang laundry on. Um, I'm I think he hits 315 uh, with you know 380 OBP, 550 slugging, uh, tremendous fantasy numbers. I'm I'm all in on Vlad this year.
0: I don't know if you were at first pitch Arizona the year that Vlad played down there, but he was in that all-star game that they had out in Surprise. And I think he went came up maybe three times, maybe twice. But on one of his at-bats, I happened to be standing there watching instead of gabbing away with uh, other guys from the from the conference. And he hit a ball off the left field fence I swear to God, it didn't go more than six and a half or seven feet off the ground the entire trip. And when it hit, it sounded like somebody thumping a bass drum. And later on, they were talking about, I don't know if they had actual uh, cameras or velocity measuring equipment out there, but people were talking about like 110 miles an hour, 115 miles an hour, that kind of thing. And that's not a one-off. That's what he does.
2: That, that's the skill set that's there. So I'm incredibly excited about him. I, I didn't see that at, at AFL that year. I've was i was, I've been in a few years, but um, that's the kind of talent he has. So I'm completely all in on Vlad.
0: In the National League, who could be a boon hitter?
2: I'm going to go I, – I wrote down a name here. I'm going to go off the board. Uh, Kyle Schwarber. I wish he wasn't playing left field. Um, I wish he'd gone to an American League team where he could just DH and just – put his glove away and never look back and have the rest of David Ortiz's career. But I I think getting out of Chicago where there were all those expectations on him will certainly help. Um I he's obviously still got to play the field in DC, at least until next year when he can DH. Um I thought it was a bargain pickup. I there's always been a part of me that just wanted to see him just be able to just do nothing but hit for a year. He can't do that yet. But I think Schwarber is going to hit 275 this year with 30 homers. Um, I'm not sure how good the production numbers will be. We'll have to see what what the rest of that lineup looks like. It's a very top-heavy lineup, but I love Schwarber this year.
0: So you don't think there's going to be a DH in the National League?
2: I'm open to – I probably think there is more than some other people do. Um, I just feel like they said last year, like they changed the rules for the playoffs on the eve of the season last year. So until we actually get the season started, I'm open to the idea that they're going to change the rules on a moment's notice. So I would say right now I'm about – Sixty-five, thirty-five. That they will still be. They will find a way to a DH this year. I think once you start having pitchers hit in spring training, they're going to realize that having pitchers hit after a year of having the pitchers not hit is a very bad idea.
0: And run the bases. Uh, I heard somebody mm-hmm. talking about that as well. It's just a bad idea. You invest millions of dollars in these guys to throw pitches off a mound, and they say, "Oh, every so often, just do a 90, 90 foot sprint." It that doesn't make any sense. But uh, it, the, there's an old saying about. Uh, people like baseball owners and it is you can count on them to do the right thing after all other options have been exhausted (laughs) (laughs) let's go over to the mound in the american league who's a boon pitcher
2: uh, that Astro staff last year had a lot of good breakouts. Uh, Christian Javier pitched very well. Uh, the guy I'm looking at this year didn't pitch a ton for them last year It's Jose Urquidy. Um I loved Urquidy, uh Going into the playoffs 2019, he had that one really great start against the Yankees. Um, and again, he didn't pitch a ton last year. From memory, I believe he was a COVID guy. So he got a late start to the season. Um, and I, I I think he steps up this year, uh, probably talking about mm, you know, 26 starts uh, he already about 3-3, three, 3-4. Three, three, Good strikeout numbers. I'm a really big fan.
0: He did have COVID. I think he missed a month, as a matter of fact. Mm-hmm. Uh, and how about a Boone pitcher in the National League?
2: I Now that the Mets don't have the – well, it's still a bad defense, but at least they have Francisco Lindor. I'm going to go with a guy who opted out last year, and that's Marcus Stroman. Um, obviously, DeGrom is going to get a ton of attention. Cookie Carrasco is going to get a ton, a ton of attention. But Stroman comes back. He does what he does, which is just you know throw that fastball down, gets ground balls. If McNeil is at second, that's probably as good as they're going to be able to do defensively. Um, but Lindor alone is a significant upgrade over Ahmed Rosario. Um, I know Andres Jimenez played a bunch at the end of last year. Um, if Dom Smith can play first base instead of Alonzo, and I think their best alignment has Alonzo Smith at first base and Alonzo off the bench, um, I think that's
0: a decent enough infield defense to, to be excited about Stromer. Joe Sheehan's boons, Vladimir Guerrero Jr. of Toronto, Kyle Schwarber of Washington, Jose Urquidy of Houston, Marcus Stroman of the Mets. Let's move on to the Baines. Joe, these are players you think have a good chance of disappointing fantasy managers this season. Again, let's start in the American League. Who's a hitter who could be a bane?
2: Yeah, that's. I'm going to go back to Biggio, Kevin Biggio. Just, I just don't trust the swing. And again, I'm leaning heavily on the analysis of, uh, of my friend Keith Law here, who's been banging on Biggio for about three years now. Um, and you know the numbers have been decent. You can't deny that the twenty for twenty stolen bases is very attractive as a from a fantasy standpoint. Uh, I just think the batting average is going to be low enough that it eats
0: everything else. Different story in on base leagues.
2: Yeah, well, again, if the batting average is driven down to two thirty, there's only so many walks you can draw that'll help that. I mean, you're still talking about then maybe a three ten, three twenty OBP, so not really.
0: In the National League, who's a bane hitter?
2: I just mentioned uh, Pete Alonso, and, you know, he actually had a pretty good, you had a 100, 100, 123 OPS plus last year. It was a slow start. They ended, ended well, but I just, at some point there's going to be a reckoning with that Mets outfield defense. They're going to have to, you know, a Smith Nimmo Conforto outfield is really awkward. I think eventually they're going to have to put Smith at first base and that's going to put the uh, pressure on you on Pete Alonzo. And, Smith is just a better hitter than Alonzo. And I think if it comes down to it, the, the playing is gonna Alonzo's gonna be the guy whose playing time gets squeezed. Now again, this is one of those situations where if they decided there's gonna be a DH, to throw all this out. And now Alonzo's playing time is guaranteed. But I really do feel like Dom Smith in left field isn't gonna work out and Pete Alonzo is gonna be
0: the loser there. Over to the mound again. How about an American league pitcher who could be a bane?
2: Uh yeah. <laughs> I'm going to use it as a catch-all and I'm going to mention Shohei Otani here. He's going to be a bane no matter what category you put him in. As long as they're trying to make him a two-way player, which they are, it's just not going to work out. It's a lot easier to have done this in uh, NPB. NPB plays 6 days a week and always has the same day off and the travel requirements and the rest requ- the travel requirements aren't nearly as dire. And you can get rest in a much more regular way than you can playing stateside. So I've said from the start that the two-way player thing wasn't going to work. Otani's thrown 55, 56 innings in three seasons stateside. Um, And I think as long as they're making him, forcing it I should say forcing as long as they're giving into his desire to be a two-way player, it's going to keep him from being the hitter and really the outfielder that he should be. So we'll stick Otani in this category here.
0: I never thought of it before, but yeah, the travel in Japan's got to be far easier than it is, especially on a West Coast team for Shoei Otani. Uh, first of all, it's all in one time zone, and second of all, I think you could fit the whole thing into like New Jersey or something, couldn't you?
2: Yep. And I remember the day I looked at the – I never really looked at the map of Japanese league teams before and just realizing just – I think the longest flight might be two hours. And again, everybody has the same day off. It's just, getting rest is just not that hard, whereas here – you know, you're playing a day game, and then you're playing a night game, and then you're playing two night games, and then you're traveling, and you're switching three time zones. It's it's a t- entirely different animal. So no, I I I appreciate that a lot of people want this to succeed, but I think it's costing us what could be a real superstar player in Shohei Otani as just a
0: pitcher or as just a hitter. Which do you think would be better?
2: I would just just because he stayed more healthy as a hitter, I'd say I'd say probably the hitter in part because he's a well, at least over in Japan, he was a very good outfielder. He's incredible speed. Like, if you just left him alone in the outfield, I think the comp I made once was to, like, I think I comped him to Richard Hidalgo. I have comped him to Bobby Higginson. But, like, think about your really athletic outfielders who can hit and run. I mean, he could conceivably play center. He's not going to for the Angels. But, like, as a right, an everyday right fielder, you're talking about, like, a five-win player just as somebody who, who runs and hits and plays the field. I mean, that that's the kind of outfield he could be. Um, maybe he can DH, but the reason he DHs is because is so that he can pitch. Like, he's not DHing because he can't play the outfield. He's DHing because the Angels don't want to have him play the outfield and pitch. And I think it's cost us, like I said, man, it's, like I say, he's 26 now, so we've lost a couple of years of watching you know, young Shohei Otani run. But Shohei Otani's, Shohei Otani's legs were a really big part of his game in Japan.
0: Let's see, a uh, right fielder who can really run, can really hit, and really throw. Certain other names come to mind. Uh, who's a National League pitcher who could be a bane?
2: Uh, I'm going to go with Sonny Gray. Um, you know, yeah, I thought that he was a little out over his skis two years ago. Obviously, the shortened season last year, he got hurt towards the end of it. Uh, I think Gray is more of a number three starter than the number one slash number two we looked at at times um, in 2019. So I think Gray is going to fall off as part of what Really could be a, a real retrenchment for that team in uh, in Cincinnati.
0: Joshian's Baines, Kevin Biggio of Toronto, Pete Alonso of the Mets, Shohei Ohtani of the Angels and Sunny Gray of Cincinnati. Uh, Joe, this has been a treat. We had some technical issues that, uh, unfortunately, none of us has teenage children around to fix uh, for us. <laughs> oh, yours, yours is getting close to teenagehood, is she not? She'll, she'll be 11 in six weeks. Don't, don't get me started. Oh, yeah. Uh, probably still knows more about how to hook up a, a Google Meet than either of us. Uh, remind our listeners where they can keep up with Joe Sheehan.
2: Uh, is where you can get all the information about the newsletter. Uh, it's coming into its 13th year, uh, and just people have really enjoyed it. We're reaching more people than we ever had before with it. If you go to the website, you get subscription information. You get uh, excerpts of everything that I do, and then you can actually scroll through and see some complete pieces as well. So JoeSheehan.com. also follow me at Joe underscore Sheehan
0: on Twitter. Didn't you used to have a, a Twitter handle that had some other thing because there was a guy in St. Louis named Joe Sheehan who was crowding you out? What it is, he got to Twitter before I did, so he has
2: Joe Sheehan without the underscore. Oh, okay. And I have it with the underscore. Um, and every now and then people get that, people will just con- you know just do Joe Sheehan and start yelling at him. He's been very patient <laughs> about that over the years.
0: It's only because you say interesting things and sometimes there's a portion of every audience that doesn't like people who say interesting things. They prefer to have the same old, same old all the time and reinforce the things they think they already know. And God bless you for not doing that. Joe Sheehan, thanks very much for helping us out. I hope I get to talk to during the season. Thanks, Patrick. Take care. Joe Sheehan writes regularly for the Joe Sheehan Baseball Newsletter. Coming up, we have our second expert interview with Scott Pianowski from Yahoo Sports. Right now, though, it's time in the show when I get to let you know about some of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In playing time tomorrow, analyst Dan Marcus assesses the rosters of all five teams in the National League West, including a timely look at a playing time crunch in Los Angeles that could affect second baseman Gavin Lux. Dan also covers all five teams in the National League Central this week. In keepers, analyst Brad Coleman looks for players in dynasty and keeper formats, including cornerstones like Alex Kirilov of Minnesota and Julio Rodriguez in Seattle. In Facts and Flukes, analyst Eric Florimonte validates the performances of five American leaguers, including Austin Meadows and Steven Matz. And those are just three articles among literally dozens. A small sampling of all the great content you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time. Facts and flukes, playing time today, playing time tomorrow, our buyer's guides, the market pulse, the big hurt, and a whole lot more. Also, fantasy baseball research and all kinds of tools you can use to draft and improve your teams and win your leagues. That's what it's all about. And it's why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Oh, and while I have you, don't forget to check out First Pitch Florida online. It's coming up March 5th through 7th, a full virtual fantasy baseball experience from the comfort of your man or woman cave, draft competitions, a front row seat to follow the labor expert league drafts. They're going to be watching a minor league game on TV. And of course, it's jam packed with engaging interactive conference sessions full of expert insights like takeaways from 2020 player development in a pandemic, changing bullpen landscapes, gaming strategy breakouts, 2021's most challenging projections, and more. It's all fantasy baseball all weekend long. Maybe even an online virtual fire pit hangout. They're just working on it. It's all fantasy baseball and it's all weekend long. There might even be an online virtual fire pit hangout. I'm just saying. It's just $79, and all registrations include a $50 discount towards a future live First Pitch conference. So check it out. BaseballHQ.com slash first dash pitch dash Florida. And we'll see you there. Baseball HQ Radio. Ah. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. My am Patrick Davitt. Time now for our second feature expert interview on this Two Tout Tuesday. It's Scott Pianowski from Yahoo Sports, longtime friend of the show. Scott Pianowski, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. It is great to be here, man. Uh, how many leagues have you drafted so far in 2021? I seem to see you all over the Twitter saying uh, about leagues. It actually hasn't been that many. I, I wish it were more.
1: Um, I, I just did the labor mixed League 15 team mixer a week ago and I would have liked to have more reps beforehand uh, I did a magazine mock for Lindy's back I guess I was in early December and then I did an, an NFBC 50 round draft and hold. The idea is to to get reps in I, I do this a lot more for football and I really should do it more for fantasy baseball and, and fantasy football I, I think they got involved Fantasy football was more proactive getting best ball into the consciousness yeah. and best ball drafts are great. We all love drafting, but a lot of us don't want to take on more team maintenance during the season because we're already at our saturation point. So what you get out of a best ball draft is all the fun of drafting and the fun of following a team along without having extra work in season. And it's just a great way to get acclimated with the player pool and to just get a sense of, just the things we wanna we wanna know. You know, what, what positions are deep, what positions are shallow, what types of nuances exist in drafts. That can only come from reps. So I, I wish I had I was a little bit better prepared from a drafting standpoint for labor than maybe I was, although I wasn't unhappy with my team. And I know we'll talk a lot about that here. I wanna say one other thing too. I know there are some people who are really dead set against the early draft and the idea is oh, we we don't know anything. And I, I realize we're in a kind of strange time in baseball where the free agents stay free a lot longer. It used to be you know, the winter meetings were just explosive and a bunch of stuff would happen. And by the turn of the new year, we'd know where most of the players were going to be settled in. Now we, we see these things tend to linger a lot longer. And we even have some things we don't even know yet if there'll be a universal DH in the National League. And that, that's just a crazy thing to not know, to be ignorant of this late in the proceedings, you know, late in you know, middle, late uh, February. But the flip side I will say to that is that if you draft early, if you can connect dots, if you can figure out who some closers will be before the whole world knows it, that's what fantasy is. That's what the game is. is that it's not just that I can predict or project things better than the guy next to me, but it's that I can get to, I can connect those dots quicker than my opponents. That's the objective. And so I feel like if you think you're good at that, in any fantasy sport whether it be fantasy football or fantasy baseball i think drafting early will actually be in your favor and i, I know people always go say, well it's, it's crazy i drafted a guy you know months before the season then he got hurt i got nothing out of him that's just the price of doing business injuries are going to get at you at any point or another but i think drafting early is a little bit underrated sometimes because it will benefit people who can connect those dots quicker that, that's the whole idea
0: Yeah, quicker and more accurately, it it is a a test of your acumen about how the game is played and how the games, uh, the teams are structured. That's the whole point of playing the game. And I think if you had, the more certainty you have, I think the less interesting it is. I know a couple of guys who have played and Ron Chandler's been running leagues where the stats are known ahead of time. He says, let's draft, you know, 2004. And then everybody sits down and has a draft and you know who won 15 seconds after it's over because they're entering it into a computer. And I understand the why of it because I think it's probably a valuable exercise in understanding the dynamics of team construction in the draft context. But if you're actually planning to compete, uh, I don't think it matters when the draft is. At any given point, the information is far from perfect. And as you get closer to opening day, yes, you have maybe a better idea of who's on the roster, but that can be temporary. It's only as long as the first slump or injury. I don't know. Anybody who cavils against any particular style of draft or time of draft, I think is missing the point of drafting. It is what it is, and you can have fun doing it any way you like. There's one other way I have framed this in the past, and, and I hope this doesn't –
1: I'm glad I get to say this rather than tweet it because I, I want it to come out with the proper inflection. because so I'm, I'm not like slamming people when I say this, but not every smart fantasy player, fantasy manager, will agree on what the ideal time is to draft. But I can guarantee you this. The weakest owners in your league desperately want to draft late, they want to draft as close to the season as possible, maybe even once the season has started because they need that information. They need that clarity. They need that certainty. And so I think there's some takeaway to that. And also you mentioned those retro drafts that, that Ron Chandler and, and Todd Zola were running the last few months. Those were a lot of fun and a great exercise. Just uh, not, not just for, because we were just shooting the shit and you know hanging out in a zoom call and, and talking about fun stuff, but, just, it just comes down to roster construction and how you build a team and i don't know that was a really great exercise i don't know what what ron and todd may have in in mind for those things down the road but um i just want to shout out to those guys for giving us something really fun to do and just one of the great reasons why we love to play fantasy anyway it, it's a social network it's a way to get together with your friends you know it's a way to get together with a bunch of people you like maybe have a drink or two and, and talk about something that's communally enjoyable for you know multiple hours i mean what's better than that we need that more than ever right now, right?
0: We do indeed. And so you you
1: were in some of those drafts. How'd you do? Really mixed. Um, I won it a couple of times. I think I won the last one we did, and I won one. I don't know a while ago, and and back when they first started debuting the idea. When you won the league, you got to pick the next year that was retro drafted. And so after I won, I picked 1978, which was kind of my coming of age season for fantasy baseball, or not fantasy baseball, regular baseball. You know, just being glued to the set and, and the box scores day in, day out. And I'm pretty sure I came in dead last in the 1978 draft. That re- really depressed. I was the Toronto Blue Jays of that draft or the Seattle Manor of that draft. So I was, I apologize to, uh, you know, it's just so funny. That was the year I would have liked to do the best and I did the worst, but I did have a couple of wins. You know, some people would say that the whole idea is if you're not first, you're last, I'd rather be competitive all the time and, and hopefully win a couple of things. But I was able to get a couple of, uh, a couple of trophies on the mantle.
0: Could, were you able to? <clears throat> excuse me. Were you able to identify any th- common themes in years that you did well uh, in these retro drafts versus years where you didn't?
1: Well, I know the last time I won, it was just because I was more prepared. Um, but I, I think I had a better sense of that Somebody on one of your previous shows might have talked about this. Maybe it was Gene McCaffrey, but I'm not sure. Position scarcity. I, I'm not a big position scarcity guy in regular fantasy, but in a retro draft, scarcity is really important because you, you get, you're getting exactly what you think you're getting. So if you see a catcher who is removed from the rest of the catching pool, if you draft JT Realmuto this year, you're hoping he's better than all the other catchers. If you draft Mike Piazza a year that he separated himself, you're definitely getting that gap. And so I think positional scarcity became an important theme. Uh, that I, I needed to learn kind of how to massage. Of course, you know, everybody else in the room is smart too. So it's not It's not like, you know, well, the moment I got my learning curve straightened out, I would beat everybody else because you're still going to beat a lot of smart people. But um, positional scarcity is a lot different when you know what the answers are statistically.
0: In a recent Yahoo Sports article, Scott, you likened pitcher drafting to running back drafting in fantasy football drafts. Uh, where do you see the crucial similarities between running backs and pitchers?
1: I want to give a shout out to Sammy Reed, um, who's a a really smart fantasy analyst who did a Twitter thread. I wish this was easy to access. And Sammy, if you're listening to this, please find a way that we can get this out there, maybe even throw it into an article form. But a couple of years ago, he talked about the similarities. And it was one of those things that he he mentioned a lot of things that, you know, the definition of a great idea, it's I wish I thought of it. He put a lot of stuff out there. And I'm like, you know, I think I've always been around these ideas. I just wish I had verbalize them or put them out in tangible form the way Sammy did. It's a position where injury is the most concern. That's for sure. And it's also the position where if you have the right answers, it gives you the most bang for your buck. Again, back to that retro drafting. A lot of times pitchers were going first overall, second overall because you know again, you know what the, you know what they're doing. You're not speculating somebody's going to be great. you know that they've already put a dominant season on board. And they have more – a pitcher – a dominant starting pitcher season almost always has more categorical impact than what Mike Trout is going to do. Again, I I feel like I'm like reading word for word from what Gene probably said a few weeks ago. But So if you have the right answer, if you could shake the magic eight ball and get the right answers at any one position in fantasy sports, fantasy – you'd want the running backs and you'd want the pitchers because even though they can be maddening, because a lot of times it comes down to who gets hurt and who doesn't, or with pitchers, just so many moving parts, right? New pitch, less pitch, n- new pitching coach, new spot on the rubber, new catcher, new ballpark. There's so many moving things, and and when a pitcher starts to pitch poorly, we always worry. Oh no, is it his shoulder? Is is his elbow? Is his forearms you used too much? What's wrong with him? But uh, it, it's the position that is the most beguiling, but it's also the position that gives you the most upside. The most it gives you the most impact if you hit on that position.
0: Well, you did say in Fantasy Baseball 2021, you need a pitching strategy, you wrote, and it needs to work. How is that different from previous seasons? Isn't pitching strategy always a crux?
1: Yeah, that's that's true. Uh, I think it's just this year, or in the current game, I think the market is drafting pitching more proactively. I think it is stocking its bench more aggressively with pitching. This is a thing that it took, again, I'm, I'm not trying to force a fantasy football podcast on everybody, but... There's one. There's a, a kind of a aha moment for the fantasy football industry where they realize, hey, I should have a bunch of running backs on my bench. My bench should be dominated by running backs because I need as many lottery tickets as possible. And I think we're getting smarter with pitching. I think we're getting smarter with when to draft it. I think we're getting smarter for what a breakout looks like. I think we're getting smarter about how to stock it on our bench. And I think we're getting smarter about how to when to acquire it and how to acquire it. From the free agent wire so the flip side of that those are all good things but the flip side of that is that if you need pitching help you need to fit fix a pitching staff i think it's a lot harder to do because your opponents have probably stocked more pitchers on their roster they probably proactively drafted it more than they have in the past collectively as a group and they've been better about how to add it off the wire so i think it's harder to fit, fix a bad pitching staff I used to be that I, I felt comfortable just almost ignoring pitching And I'll just figure it out. I'll cobble it together. I don't think it's anywhere near as easy to cobble it together anymore because your opponents are so much smarter.
0: You mentioned the labor draft. I talked earlier with Joe Sheehan about his draft. He was in the same draft as you were. You drafted number two. He was at number 14. So you were at opposite ends. You Mm -hmm. said in an article at Yahoo Sports that the number two position is not your preferred slot. Where would you rather draft and why? Why?
1: I'm excited to hear that Joe Sheehan's the other person on this show because he's a good friend, and, man, he's what a heck of a baseball writer he is. So I'll look forward to that. A couple of things come into play with picking on, on the First of all, if, I wouldn't mind the one or two pick if there were talents, I thought, that separated themselves significantly from the rest of the pool, and I just don't see it this year. I, I took monkey bets with my number two pick. Knowing that the guys I, w- I was passing on, some of them would probably go to the middle of that first round, and just I don't see the talent dropping off significantly at all as the first round goes through. Also, in a in a especially in a fifteen team league, I feel like I'm just in touch with things more. Just in, I'm more crisp when I'm in the middle of a draft because I, I don't. I just hate the idea of a, a what is it twenty eight picks or whatever it is before I pick again. Twenty six picks, I, whatever it, it turns out to be. I don't know, something, something to do with my engagement or my my mental acuity or my sharpness that I like to be, you know, if I, if I were like a relief pitcher on a baseball team, I'd be like, you know, use me regularly. Don't use me like on Monday and then make me sit for three days. You know, I, wa- I want to be getting regular reps and stay sharp. I feel like I'm sharper if my picks are coming at a more consistent level. And then you don't have to, sometimes crazy runs can Begin, start, and end before you've had any say in it. And sometimes you have to make wild, you know, projections on what's going to happen in the next two rounds, which can be difficult to do. I feel like my just whatever it is about my skill set with drafting, I feel like it just applies better in the middle of the draft. And I don't see the top talent in fantasy drafts this year being that much better than the the middle of the first round. So I don't think I'm you're getting any reward for picking earlier either. But I tend to draft better. In the middle of a round. And also I, I will say the one thing, at least I had the two pick and not the one pick. So if I had to be near an end, I would like to be not on the actual absolute end, because at least you can use neighborhood knowledge of okay, if you're picking fourth or third or something like that, when it comes back down to you, you can examine the rosters behind you, see what they need, and sometimes make a more informed decision because you have a sense of what they might do based on their roster construction and what their immediate Needs are. I I, seem to, I think I draft better anyway in the middle, and I'm not sure I explained this very well, but I always feel better with a middle pick. This year, anywhere from five to nine would be fine with me.
0: So, you had uh, the number two pick you considered, uh, you said in Yahoo Sports, maybe taking DeGrom or Cole, and then another hitter in the second round. Uh, your first choice for a hitter would have been Tatis, but you got sniped with the very first pick of the draft. You know, it's going to be a long day. And you ended up, you said, uh, taking Mookie bets. Why bets, not Acuna or Juan Soto or some of the other guys who've been bandied about in that hire? Yeah, higher any of those echelon. guys are
1: fine. Uh, man, you look at Soto's baseball reference page, all that black ink. I mean, he's like Ted Williams. So he would have been an easy guy a pick. I, Mike Trout is never a, a bad pick. I ultimately settled on bets because I like the age pocket he's in, I like the, the deep lineup that the Dodgers have, when I think of what lineup protection, what it means to me, it's not the idea that, Oh, they're afraid of you. They're afraid of the guy behind you. So they're going to throw you good pitches. I think of lineups in a sense of buoyancy that I want a player to come up to bat with players on base. I want a player to come up to bat with good hitters behind him. So they will be, the lineup will turn over liberally and and, and with regularity and the team will score a lot of runs. Just really simple things. You want to go where, where the runs are going to be. I like the age pocket of Betts. I like the fact that he's been durable and or willing to play through injuries. He can do a little bit of everything. He's not going to hit 40 home runs, uh, but he he is really good average play, which I think sometimes tends to be underrated. And he's still interested in stealing bases. So I I don't think anybody needs a sell job on on Mookie Betts. The problem is I can't tell you that he's clearly the right pick over Soto or clearly the right pick over Trout or Acuna or a number of other guys. So um, I, I just thought Betts... Had the highest floor of these players, but it's if that's even knowable, and if, if that's even true, I don't think it's by a great degree.
0: You didn't take the pitcher with the f- second overall pick. You could have had your your dibs of Degrom or Cole, whoever you you really like. And in hindsight, you said you wish you had taken Degrom, in part because, and I'm quoting you here, the room destroyed my pitching board. What what had happened there?
1: Yeah, was it Derek Van Riper who coined the, the yellow brick road, which is the the color of the pitching? When, when you see the the draft board in, in, in RT Sports, and I think some other draft rooms do this too, every, every draft room has a, a colored pitcher board, uh, colored player you know coordination, but they happen to be yellow in this particular room. And the second round, I, I was thinking when I started with bats, I thought, okay, well, what pitcher could I get in the second round? I would really like Jack Flaherty. I I thought stupidly I thought maybe Trevor Bauer could get to me to in the second round. And he didn't even get out of the first round, so it shows what I know. I, I think I was misled, perhaps. I've seen him go in some other second rounds, but uh, I should have thought that once he signed with the Dodgers, that that was out the window. So the idea is Degrom or Cole, and they're they're really interchangeable in my mind. I slightly prefer Degrom, but it's not by I'm not going to argue with you of Cole at the top of your board. I think the build I would have got I would have gotten plenty of great offensive. Talent, even without a first-round bat, and I feel like I, I would have got a much safer pitcher and a much higher floor and even upside for innings than I, I got out of Clayton Kershaw in the second round. As much as I love Kershaw, he's a he's a whip dominator. He's right park, right team. I still think he's at an age where I'm not concerned about him. You worry about the Dodgers. They they kind of view themselves as already in the playoffs. I know the Padres are really good too, but the expanded playoffs. The moment any of the pitchers has the sniffles, they're going to want to skip on the start. They're thinking October already. And so I don't think there's a lot of innings upside with Kershaw. I, you know, he could throw easily 30 to 50 fewer innings than DeGrom or Cole in a full season. And so I, I probably should have thought this through more. That I, I guess I guess have to be comfortable with the idea that taking a pitcher second overall, I, maybe I just I've been raised too often just to automatically take that hitter in the first round especially at the top of the first round. But if we redrafted Labor tomorrow, I would have taken DeGrom.
0: You mentioned you took Kershaw with your, as your first pitcher pick, and you decided that you're going to treat him as though he's still the ace he once was. And you talked about the anchors away strategy. I'm not familiar with that term. What is anchors away?
1: Yeah, this is a strategy that I've used for, for both baseball and football. I and mean, it's the idea that you get that one no doubt, and I'm not even sure Kershaw really applies anymore. Because again, I, I think he's a clear step down from Cole and Degrom, and and even like maybe the pitchers who would be three to six on most boards. But the idea that you get one sure thing as a starter, and then you let the draft come to you, and you know if you have to get lucky, if you're maybe like a, a tier behind everybody else on pitching, so be it. Just get that one guy. Someone a lot of times in fantasy football where zero RB is a popular strategy, which is just don't take any early running backs and just try to get. Fortunate with the middle middle round picks, the lottery tickets, the the waiver wire, and the idea that, especially in football, they're acting, they want to view the volatility of the position as a plus for somebody who drafts your RB because the more guys get hurt, the more it may play into your position where you're getting all the understudies. It's a little bit different in pitching with baseball because in football, if a star running back gets hurt or if a primary running back gets hurt, somebody will inherit his workload and so much of fantasy football value is who's getting the goal line carries, who's getting the touches. Clayton Kershaw gets hurt. You know, it, There may be a pitcher who steps in for the Dodgers who ends up being pretty good, but it's not like – it's not a direct apples-to-apples apples comparison where just merely being on the mound for a good baseball team doesn't necessarily hold value. If you're pitching poorly, it doesn't matter if your team is good. You're going to be a fantasy negative, so – um, I like the idea of getting that one horse and then maybe transitioning away from pitching. I just, again, I think I should have made it to Grom or Cole. I think I screwed up by by doing it with Kershaw. I, I think I also talked myself into really thinking that Flaherty would be there in the second round. In 15 teams, there's 14 opponents. They all get to pick two. I'd like my team a lot more if I can swap out Kershaw for Flaherty, but, but so it goes.
0: And so you decided. Well, I would like to pursue an ace strategy, and he's he's my ace for better or worse. So you picked uh, Xander Bogarts in the top of the third round, and then you said more pitcher carnage. So the Yellow Brick Road missed you both times.
1: Yeah, it turns out after I took Bogarts, there weren't a lot of pitcher. I don't. I think the most of the third round was hitting, but then the fourth round was was so much pitching. At that point, I'm just like, okay, I'm not going to force it. I'm not. I think traditionally that fourth to eighth round, fifth to 10th round. That's a lot of times the poorest place to value wise to draft starting pitching. So at that point, I was like, you know what, I'm just going to stock up as many good hitters as I can in good lineups, in good parks. And I man, I, I feel really good about the hitters. Like I, you know, bets in LA, nobody needs to be talking to that. Um, as bad as the Red Sox are on the mound and as much as they've, t- they've taken hits for the direction they've done, that the organization has done with some of the choices they still have a really good lineup in a very favorable place to hit. There's almost no foul territory in that park. I I think that lineup is still going to be a top five, top six lineup. I I got pieces of the Toronto lineup. I got pieces of the of the Chicago lineup. I, I think Juan Moncada has been a terrific fantasy bargain for most of the early draft season. I think he'll come up like a full round when people realize that last year. I mean, the guy, the guy had COVID and then basically had a COVID hangover for the rest of the season. I, I don't hold anything. I give him a complete excused absence from last year. Or so. Uh, I like the offense I built. I just thought when the room was drafting, pitching more proactively than I had in the past, I wasn't, you know, if, if I saw a pitcher who made sense, if I, if I had gotten, I thought a reasonable price on Kyle Hendricks. So I know Joe ended up drafting. I, I had hit my, my eye on him. I had my eye on Kent and Jose uh, Barrios. You know, all those guys went before I could have taken them. I, if I would have taken them the last moment I had a chance to take them, the price wouldn't have made any sense in my particular slot. So The room gave me hitting. I piled up on hitting.
0: I wonder if you've noticed something that I think I've noticed, and that is in January when the really early drafts were starting, there was a lot of talk, a lot of expert buzz, a lot of touting going on about this pocket aces strategy. People saying, I've got to have two high-level pitchers in my first three rounds. Some of them saying two and four, and then when you looked at the drafts at that period of the season or of the preseason, you did see a lot of yellow in those first two rounds. And I noticed that in your draft at Labor, not so much. You know, there was only, I think, two of your drafters started pitcher-pitcher. Uh, Jeff Erickson went with Cole and Giolito at 8-23 and 23, and Dr. Roto and bieber Bueller at 10-21. And only eight of your drafters had two starters even after round five so has the momentum shifted away from I've got to get my two top starters right away and then I'll figure out hitting later and is it starting to swing back into a more normal situation where guys are a little more willing as Todd Zola says to bully the hitting and manage the pitching
1: what I suspected might have happened in labor because it's 15 teams is that not that many managers saw the right pitchers for them the start pitcher pitcher. But I do think that the ratio of pitchers drafted versus overall picks for the first seven, the first eight, the first 10 rounds, I, I haven't done the math on this. But intuitively, I think it's, this is probably correct, that there was more pitching taken. There's more of a priority of pitching overall, if, if you want to view it in that prism of six, seven, eight, ten 10 rounds. I think Joe started, the Sheehan team started with three hitters, but then he pounded like five or six pitchers in the next handful of rounds. I think a lot of teams... Just had a little more, again, it wasn't that they necessarily had to start with two pitchers, but that they were going to draft if they normally would have started seven hitters, three pitchers, or eight hitters, two pitchers. I think they added the extra one or two pitchers in their first 10 picks. I think that would maybe be a better way to frame how this room, I still think, was pitching more pitching um, focused than it might have been in previous years. I think that's more reflected looking a little bit more broadly in the top third of the draft.
0: Well, after you took Kershaw, your next pitcher wasn't until early in the 7th, and that was presumed closer Edwin Diaz of the Mets, not even a starter. And then you went back-to-back 11-12-13 with Kevin Gosman, Denelson-Lamette, and Chris Bassett. Uh, How were you making pitching decisions at that point in the draft?
1: You break my heart when you call him presumed closer, man. I need him to close, so don't, don't 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 jinx my man Diaz. I need him. I need him to be alive in the ninth inning and hopefully get some better luck than he's had. He's some really bad batted ball luck. I, I think Ariel Cohen was in the pro Diaz cap, and, and even with Ariel being a Mets fan, I'm I'm glad to have him on on the side of a player I picked that I really need. I don't think this room, by the way, was aggressive towards relief pitching. I thought if I had known that it would be as laissez faire as it was with the saves, I would have gone even less of a priority with that. But uh Lamette, Gossman and Bassett, who I think a- anybody can see they all have fantasy credibility. For them to be your second, third, and fourth starters is you know, obviously problematic. There's a gate you know, somebody could look at my roster and say, where's the rest of it? You know, where's the rest of your pitching staff? I must be missing somebody. I, how i feel so much better if I could just plug in a Jose Barrios on this team or a Kyle Hendricks. But I kind of like the way these three guys, these three pitchers fit in. I took them consecutively. And two of them, I would have taken really close in tandem. I forget exactly what the order was, the cadence was, but Bassett is the floor guy, the big park. Um, he's he's just, I think more of a, a track record than the other two. Where I'm confident he'll be good, maybe not great. Gossman probably has the highest upside of the three, or at least it's higher than Bassett. So it'll be interesting to see how that park plays again. I think we're all excited when he got out of Baltimore, but he's been with a few other teams. It wasn't like immediately got out of Baltimore was great. I mean, he didn't pitch so hot for Atlanta. He had some ups and downs. I think it was Cincinnati was his other team, but really good last year. And I've always believed in his pedigree and his raw stuff. And I I think he could be a player who pops for me. Lament I got several, several rounds after what his ADP was. To the point was, I I, and I love that we had a forty-five second clock in this draft. So if you needed to do some quick research on something, you better type quickly and, and get your information as quickly as possible. It wasn't like you could you know call time out or you know, take two minutes to, to really do deep research. But when Lamette was sliding into the double-digit rounds, I'm thinking, did I did I miss that he went to see James Andrews or you know somebody in LA, a elbow specialist? He's obviously not 100 percent healthy right now. You worry about the elbow, the sliders, and all that, but. Really strong team behind him. Petco isn't as extreme as it used to be for a park, but still favorable. He's I'm just asking myself at this point. Again, I thought Bassett was the floor guy. I thought Gossman was a mix of there's a little bit of floor there and the decent upside. Lamette to me is easily just an upside pick, who could also be somebody who I'm, you know, IL stashing and or cutting, you know, a month into the season. But at that point, I'm just looking for somebody who could maybe be a home run for me.
0: I think he could, you know, because uh, I've been reading here and there that every so often a tout will say, you know, if it wasn't for the injury risk, Lamette would be a second or third rounder. If you knew that he was going to pitch his full slate of innings, the the problem is you don't know that. And so I think if you get lucky and they manage his innings properly and uh, you could really be in on, on something. So when you look back, how did you like your team? You know, I think I have an excellent chance to contend
1: with this team. And I, I really like the way I assembled my offense. I, I got a lot of players who I I've thought were – I'm not somebody who goes in like, I got to get my guys. You know, here are like the 15 guys. I'm going to try to get them come hell or high water, especially in a draft. You, I think you can be more target-focused in an, an auction, a bidding format where you have a little bit more control over it. But I feel great about the offense I assembled. I, I just need to either hit on a lot of the pitching I drafted or figure it out during the season. And, and that's where I get – a little bit depressed about this team because this labor traditionally is not a heavy trading league. I, I will try to trade um, Joe and I have made some trades in the past. Jeff Erickson, and I have made trades in the past. I I've met at times people in labor who just don't want to make trades. They just prefer not to, and they don't want to take the risk or they're happy. They really believe in the guys they've drafted. And then there's always going to be some teams you just don't match up with. You, you need what he needs and you know, you have what he has in, in excess. And so there's just not a fit there. So, I don't expect that this is a team. Oh, I'll just fix it by trading. Or if this was a more casual league, I'd say, okay, I'll just rule the waiver wire. I'll be the Tony Soprano on the waiver wire. I'll get whatever I want in the fab bidding. I I can't assume that. This is a league where anywhere from 10 to 12, and often all 15 teams will bid on Sunday night. So, it's going to be competitive to get guys. And there's no $0 bidding. So, you don't have unlimited resources. You know, if if you end up making a couple of big fab plays that that could easily blow out a major chunk of your budget, it could hamstring you later in the season. So I would not, you know, Ron Chandler said many years ago, draft for value and then, you know, get balance in season, you know, trade for balance, you know, do pickups for balance, your roster maintenance can balance your team out. I love that strategy. And there's a lot of leagues I think that's very viable the personality of this league and the habits of this league in recent years, I don't think have made that strategy as viable here as it might be in a different room.
0: You're listening to baseball HQ Radio, Patrick David with Scott Pianowski from Yahoo Sports and and you told me offline that you listened to our baseball HQ radio interview with Rob Silver and that you disagreed with his negative take on Adalberto Mondesi. You then said Mondesi widely represents the gap between fantasy and real life value. What did you mean?
1: It doesn't matter if Alberto Mondesi is a good player. Like I think he, he reminds me so much of the situation Jonathan VR was in a couple of years ago with the Orioles, where VR isn't a great real life player. He has holes in his swing. He has holes in his game. But so long as the Orioles are willing to play him, as so long as the Orioles are willing to slot him in a high lineup slot and say run whatever the heck you want, and I think a lot of times losing teams don't have anything to market, don't have anything to sell, don't have anything to build excitement around their team. So if they have Somebody who could be dominant as a base stealer, they kind of have that DGAF, just, oh, okay, run whatever you want. We don't care. I know Mondesi's uh, on-base percentage is awful, and if you're in an OBP league, you have to be concerned with that. But his last three years, I think he's hit 265 collectively, and he's hit 29 home runs in what amounts to about a season and a half. So he's not a zero in the power area. He has, despite being a bad real-life offensive player, because, again, he doesn't walk, he's going to strike out a bunch, And and, on a good team, he wouldn't be playing or he'd be batting ninth or something like that. That's not a problem for the Royals. They're going to hit him first or second and tell him, run whenever you want. I understand why theoretically he's a batting average risk, but he hasn't hit for a poor average in three seasons. So I see a guy who, on a team that needs something to sell, a guy who wants to run, he's at an age of his career where there's no reason why that would drop off. I realize when when guys get older and, and more... Physical concerns creep into their game that maybe you might stop running. He's nowhere near that. The Royals aren't even going to care if he's caught a bunch of times. not like if Mondesi's won for his first five, the Royals are going to be like, hey, wait a minute, stop doing this. I mean, they're nowhere near contention. So to me, it's all about minding the gap of, I think the batting average risk is a little bit overplayed. The OBP stinks, but as long as the Royals don't care, I don't care. And I think Mondesi's just one of those guys who is every time he's on base, he's going to try to steal second base. What, he still 16 bases in September? And he's not a love, he's not a zero in the power area. This is not somebody who's a strict, what we call a rabbit, where all he's really going to do is run. But, you know, no power to speak of, and and the batting average could stay. I get that he could hit 220 or 230, but he hasn't hit 220 or 230 anytime recently. Again, 265 the last three years, which in the current frame of baseball is actually a plus. That will actually help you. That will be above the league median in batting average. So it comes down to a very simple thing. Is Modesty a good real life player? No. In fact, he might be kind of a crummy real life player, but he is willing, able to do something that's really important for fantasy while actually being okay in the other categories. So I think he's perfectly great third round pick. And in some leagues, I think he makes perfect sense in the second
0: round. I think two things when I heard you say that. The first is being a bad real life player seems to me to create a risk that he just ends up not playing because he's a, he's a detriment to his team. And at some point they go, yeah, we know that you're an excellent fantasy player, but we need, you know, somebody who can field his position and somebody who's going to get on base a little bit because we need runs. And that's one thing. But the other thing that was interesting to me, Scott, is when you said, you know, everybody's predicting a 220, 225, 230 batting average, and he's never hit that poorly. And we always talk about you can't buy a player based on something he hasn't done in the past. The flip side of that would seem to be you shouldn't sell a player on that basis either. If you're if you're going to project that he's going to do something good, you're taking a chance. If you're going to not buy a guy because you're projecting something bad that he hasn't done, you're still taking a chance. You're taking the same chance.
1: I know Jeff Zimmerman put out a piece on Fangraphs maybe a couple months ago just talking about, look, I, I don't want to draft bad hitters, I don't want to draft bad players because they run they run that risk of losing their job. This is why I think it's so important that Mondesi is on a Royals team. Where if Mondesi was on a team, like I think of, I compared him to Jonathan VR in 2019. Jonathan VR now is on the Mets, and if he becomes an offensive sinkhole for whatever role they end up giving him, they're trying. They think they can win the NL East. They think they can win the pennant, the World Series. They're they're going to try to fix that problem. Where I feel like the Royals. If Mondesi's hitting 179 on May 15th, they'll make note of that, but it's not like they have a longer view on what they're trying to do. So I think it's it's important that Mondesi's on a bad real-life team because I don't think there's going to be as much urgency to get him out of the lineup if he gets off to a poor start.
0: He's not costing anybody a pennant, that's for sure. Uh, Speaking of controversial middle infielders, you said Tim Anderson of the White Sox is the kind of mistake or blind spot that smart players often make. And the smarter your league, the more likely you've been killing them with Anderson for years. I think I know what you mean, but maybe you could confirm it. What were you getting at? Man, I love Tim
1: Anderson. He never walks, and he swings at just about anything. And he's had some really high, what we'd call outlier hit rates or BABIPs. His career BABIP is 348. He hits the ball off the barrel of bat very high percentage of the time, at least he did last year. He obviously runs well. We can't hold the league average in Babbitt, the league norm, the median, any of that. We can't hold that against Anderson because he's proven that he can beat it consistently. And I, I, Again, back to our, our friend Gene. You know, I think he said that when he saw Steamer had Anderson hitting 275 this year, he's like, I would fix that whatever is in your algorithm before I spit that out again in public, you know, there's something wrong. There's, they're missing something on Anderson. He's um, got category juice. You know, he's, he's interested in running. He's, he's got enough power to, to think about maybe 20 plus home runs. Be- he doesn't have an approach that we, we want guys to be selective. We want guys to swing at strikes and not swing at balls. And we don't, we, we see high outliers for something like hit rate. And we we're like, okay, that's going to normal. This is a really big thing to me. You can't just say regression and drop the mic. You can't just say re- regression and walk out of the room. Regression is a great way to start a conversation. It is not a conversation ender. And when people said last year, oh, that Tim Anderson BABIP, that's going to regress, the question has to be to what? Well, what did it regress to? Like three 350 or something? 360? I forget what it was. It was something very high. Because again, his career BABIP is 348. Tim Anderson has... An approach that people generally don't like, and he has a skill set that allows him to do something at a higher rate of success than the normal player would be. We we shouldn't be holding this against. This is why, like, you know, people would have looked at Mariano Rivera's entire career and been like, "Oh, you know, his his expected ERA is so much lower than it should be." Well, at some point, he owns that. He's proven that he can beat it. We should be steering into that, not steering away from it. I, I feel like this is the first year Tim Anderson is actually priced where he should be i think for years you were getting him two three four y- rounds later because much like mondesi a little bit different but people were afraid of the 238 season that tim anderson was going to give them he won a batting title two years ago and then hit well over 300 last year Right? he's one of my favorite players shortstops a very deep position and you can do well at almost any price point but i know that i'll have tim anderson shares this year and, and again because he's willing to accumulate and be successful in a way that people aren't comfortable with he doesn't fit the ideal cookie-cutter mold of a successful hitter. I say, so what?
0: Yeah, I was looking at Tim Anderson's BAB as well after I talked about him with Gene. And the thing is, his 348 career average is high, as you mentioned, and there's no reason to suspect that it's all of a sudden going to regress back to the league average .300. As a matter of fact, I did a research story years ago about batter BABIPs, and it turns out that they set each guy sets his own, which would right. stand to reason, right? Because you know Manny Ramirez and uh, you know uh, Pete Orr was the guy I used in the example from years ago are not going to have the same babbip because Manny Ramirez hits the hell out of the ball, and Pete Orr is a banjo hitter, and you just got to expect that the higher babbip is going to devolve to the guy who hits the ball harder. Tim Anderson's 348 career BABIP is made up of three seasons where he was almost at 400, 399, 383, 375, and then a 328 season. And then the outlier here is the 289 in 2018. And so, if you just toss out the very high and the very low, 348 seems like it could be conservative. Now the projections that I've seen range from about 325 to about 350. So there's still some disagreement in the algorithms, but I'm with you. I think if I'm looking at Tim Anderson, I'm going to project or expect that he's going to have a BABIP north of 340 or maybe even north of 350. And if there's any surprise, I'm going to bet it's upside rather than down. So at uh, Tim Anderson can fall a few rounds every draft because I'll have him in every draft and I'll be happy about it. Uh, Milwaukee reliever Devin Williams was unreal last year and you said he was so unreal, I know I won't have him this year. Just jumping too much in ADP or what's the the story there? Yeah, the ADP
1: jump and the idea that I feel like here's a case where, and I do think the market's getting smarter with this, but it's so easy to find out of nowhere, wipe out reliever. Two years ago, I, I got a bunch of Nick Anderson and I we did a Yahoo video where Nick Anderson was like 1% owned. And I'm like, I know you've never heard of this guy, but just pick him up. Pitchers who very earlier in the season show uh, what baseball you would call the DOM rate, right? The, the strikeouts per nine or you know, the command rate, strikeouts per, uh, over their walks. That That's still for all the advancement we've made in stats. It's amazing how much you can get out of the strikeouts and out of the walks. And So I I feel like you can always find it, maybe not to the level of Williams's dominance last year. I mean, when he won rookie of the year, he was, he was amazing, but there's going to be guys just, it's a, it's a cheat code three weeks, four weeks, five weeks in, just do a really deep dive in your league and try to find some pitchers with two walks and 13 strikeouts. I guarantee there'll be four or five of them and probably a handful of them you've never heard of. And let's try to buy at the bottom of the, the price market, not at the top, You you know, Note to my friend, Mike Salfino, he, he's talking about relievers. He's like, they're like French fries, you know, they're great when they're hot, but they don't stay hot very long. And once they, they become you know bad, once they're, once they cool off, they're just gross and you want to throw them out. I mean, that's, that's a, it's a cute way of saying what I think is true enough of the time that we have to be mindful of it, that, you know, whatever this was relievers with the, the muscle memory or whatever groove they get in with the pitch. Sometimes if we don't know if that carries over a year in in year out, I was out on Nick Anderson last year. He was plenty good, although he certainly was out of gas in the in the playoffs. I'm going to try to find the next Nick Anderson or the next Devin Williams. I will be very proactive with trying to see what relievers, you know, what fails. And a lot of times with these relievers, a lot of times why you can get them for free is because they failed as starters. They've thrown them in the bullpen. You know, maybe Vince Velasquez will be one of this guy, one of those guys where you know, oh yeah, what what do I want him? You know, career you're already probably around five. But maybe the Phillies will end up throwing him in the bullpen, and maybe he'll have one of those like two inning games where he strikes out five guys or something like that. And I'll act off that. Be proactive trying to pick up some of these guys early in the season when the walk and strikeout. Remember, also, a great thing about walk and strikeout is they st- we're always looking, we get so much value out of deep sample sizes, right? And the problem is we have to make decisions on small sample sizes. One great thing about walk and strikeout rate, there are stats that stabilize quickest to the point of having meaning in season. So let's try to buy these guys late April, early May, and let's not proactively buy them in the draft season.
0: You said that Luke Voigt of the Yankees remains a buy because the room is anchored to its priors. Now, I've seen a lot of touts say he's jumping up too much based on a single really good year. Uh, What does it mean to you that the room is too anchored to its priors?
1: I would argue he's actually been good for three years, although not to the level he was last year, where he was a borderline MVP candidate. I love what I call the, the Whit Merrifield All-Stars, players who weren't rated prospects, weren't in the majors or producing in the majors in their early to mid-20s, and then they have a season at age 27, age 28, age 29. And there's a tendency, the following year, that people, it's almost like the analysts are mad Like I I didn't see Whit Merrifield coming. I never ranked him on a prospect list. I didn't believe when he got off to a hot star, I didn't believe in it. So they want to like double down against him the following season. And a lot of times these guys are great value. So this is the first year we actually have to draft void with the expectation. They'll be very good. But again, the buoyancy of the New York lineup. I just think people hold it against players because they took too long to get a chance, took too long to develop. They were never expected to be good ahead of time. And we like it. It's really nice when, like, we expect Bryce Harper to be great and he's great. We expect Mike Trout to be great and he's great, or Tatis, or any number of players. But sometimes guys just get blocked, or they are blind spots to, um, to the scouts. You know, Paul Goldschmidt was never a top hundred prospect. You know, Nelson Cruz was a guy who had a much better career in his thirties than he did in his twenties. I used to call those guys the Raul Abania's All Stars. He's another late bloomer. a you know, former catcher who couldn't really find his way. He was great all through his thirties. I think the idea that people thought Luke Voigt was just a journeyman two or three years ago has led to some anchoring bias. It's going away this year with his ADP rising. But I think people think, well, I didn't think anything of Luke Voigt three years ago, so I'm not going to be the sucker. I'm not going to be the lemming who all of a sudden thinks he's great. And the, the beauty of these guys is that I think you can draft Luke Voigt this year. He can have a fair amount of regression from his efficiency from last year and still make you a profit. Whenever a player can get worse, and you can still make a profit on him, I I think you're really set up for a great fantasy opportunity.
0: Luke Voigt's an interesting guy because he had all those home runs last year. I think almost as many as he had in 2019 in half the at-bats. And that's certainly got to catch your interest. But everything else seems to be going in the wrong direction. You know, his, his walk rate was way down. His strikeouts were down. That was good. But uh, I think he swapped in a lot of line drives for fly balls, which I suppose is good for your uh, home run potential. But 35% home run for fly ball rate seems pretty pretty steep. I don't know. It's a mixed bag to me, and I I think this is going to be one of those instances where you really have to be careful – not to reach, but if the player falls to you at a really good slot for value, then I think it's okay to just assume that 2019 wasn't a fluke, that parts of 2020 are pretty realistic and there's enough good there to say, you know, if it's a fourth round, fifth round, I'll take him. If uh, if I think somebody's going to grab him in the third, they can have him.
1: I mean, his career still slashes out to 274, five twenty seven. And and as much as that's bolstered by what he did last year, that was just 56 games. I I think maybe we're missing. I mean, his career, his slash, his combined slash in 2018 was 322, 398, 671. It was only 47 games, but at some point this is all added up to a career resume, which is actually pretty good. And again, I love the the buoyancy of that New York lineup. There'll be talented players in front of him who get on base. There'll be talented players behind him who will knock him in. uh, I'm going to believe in void. I and I don't because I, again I don't think the room is forcing me to pay any exorbitant price. I think he can give back. His OPS plus last year was 156. He could slide down to like maybe his career is 136. If he he just hits, if he just matches or is in the neighborhood of what he does for his career, I think he's an easy profit
0: player. And staying at first base, you said you're not going to be rostering Vladimir Guerrero Jr. nor Anthony Rizzo. Why not? You
1: know, Vlad, he's kind of the opposite of, of the void. in that void pops and, and people didn't think much of him prior, so they don't want to be the sucker and believes in it. I think with Guerrero, who we all expect to have a great career, and I think it's notable. I, I know people laugh with the best shape of his life stuff, but hey, I, I think being in shape is probably a good idea for any athlete. And the fact that Vlad's lost a lot of weight, I think, is, is probably a good thing. I, I, I see nothing negative about it. Maybe it means also just a better approach and... More focus and seriousness towards his craft, but he's still priced at a at a pocket where he needs to produce at a level he's never produced. That you know, unlike a player like Voigt, and look, if it came to Guerrero or Voigt, I would take Guerrero. I, I don't want to have any misgivings about that. But Voigt can get worse than he was last year and make you a profit. Guerrero needs to get better to justify where he's going, and I don't want to get invested in players too often where they need to improve to justify what their draft slot is. In the case of Rizzo, this is career just going in the wrong direction. He's in his thirties. Now I don't like that lineup anywhere near as much as I used to. And I know this hasn't happened yet. So maybe I'm worried for no reason, but he's led the league and being hit by pitches a bunch of times He's he, one of those guys who hangs out over the plate. I know he's a lot of armor on his body. So maybe it's not that big of a deal. Knowing that he's going to get hit 20 or 25 times in a season, it just makes me nervous that one of those pitches is going to hit him in the wrist, hit him in the hand, hit him in the wrong part of the body, and then it's going to be the season that Anthony Rizzo plays 105 games. That hasn't happened to this point in his career, so maybe I just have to expect that he's figured out how to protect himself. He, he has enough body armor that's not a major risk. But I, going into the season knowing that's part of his profile, it makes me nervous.
0: You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick Davitt with Scott Pianowski from Yahoo Sports. And Scott, I can't let you go without getting a quick take on the NHL. I don't really start following it until about the second round of the playoffs. I know you're a big fan. Maybe you can update me. Who do you think are the teams to beat in the Stanley Cup tournament this year?
1: I hope people realize for whatever bad baseball advice I may have given everybody. The last time we spoke, I did tell people the Tampa Bay lightning were to win the Stanley cup. You and did had some pretty good odds. I, I think we got eight or nine to one on them at that time. So, um, you know, come, come for the baseball, stay for the hockey. It's been a really fun season and props to what's been going on in Canada where they've handled the COVID outbreak so well. There haven't been any cancellations with the Canadian teams in that Canadian Northern division. And I know, look, you get Toronto ties. I know there's a tendency to be skeptical of that team, but I think this is the year that they're going to go deep, although there's a lot of Canadian teams that I like. But they have scoring from three different lines. They have young players at pockets. Right now, Austin Matthews would probably be second in the MVP voting if they had it today. I think he and Connor McDavid are going to have a great battle down the stretch of who wins that. And their power play looks terrific. didn't look very good Monday night. They played one of their worst games of the season and got shut out, I believe it was, on Monday night. But the depth of their offense I really like. I think they probably need the trade for maybe one more defenseman, and I'm not sure how great Frederick Anderson is. But I love teams that can get scoring from multiple lines. I love teams that can dominate a power play the, the way Toronto can. And although I actually was more of a Mike Babcock fan than a lot of people were, I think getting away from Babcock, it's been a season or two now. I think just having a different voice and a more maybe modern type of coach where you know these guys don't want to be barked at all the time, I, I think that actually speaks well to um, just the emotional climate of this team, the tempo of this team seems a lot better. So I think they're going to win the North. Vegas and Colorado are, are in the same division, and whoever wins that, and th- th- they're probably going to be on a collision course in the playoffs. Whoever wins that division I think will be the favorite in my mind to, to hoist the cup. Colorado has three really good defensive pairs that I like. They have a superstar in uh, Nathan McKinnon, who I actually picked to win MVP before the season. He's, he was injured for a little bit, has gotten off to a little bit of a slower start than some of the other superstars. So I don't think McKinnon's going to win the heart, but they, again, have extremely good depth with the upside of a first line that can dominate and a power play that has signs of dominance. They look really good. And, and Vegas, I think they have the deepest blue line in the league. They don't have quite as much star power on offense, but they do have two really good scoring lines. And they have a lot of guys like Mark Stone. He's one of my fantasy players on one of my hockey teams, actually. And he's just one of those guys you don't think that much about, but in a full season, he's going to score anywhere from 65 to 85 points. He's a really good like B-plus type of player. And that seems like Vegas has a lot of guys like that. I thought Boston might have been hitting a down cycle um, with just getting older. They weren't sure if Pasternak, when he would come back, they weren't sure if... Um Martian would be ready to go. And, and, you know, Marchand was great all season. Paschner got back quickly, and he's just been filling the net with goals. Patrice Bergeron still has a lot in the tank in his mid-30s, probably on a Hall of Fame career. They have two really good goalies. This is a good, you know, this condensed schedule. It's, it's really advantageous to have two really strong goalies. That advantage won't mean anything in the playoffs, but everybody will settle in on one goalie. But I think Boston will probably win that very competitive division. I could see anybody between Carolina, Florida, and Tampa Bay winning, The other division, it hurts that Kucherov is likely out for the full season. Maybe he'll come back late in the year, but he's Tampa Bay's best player. I'm going to pick Carolina for now. My final four is going to be Carolina, Boston, Toronto, and I guess Colorado, but it really could be Vegas. And whoever wins that Colorado-Vegas arm wrestling in that division, I'll pick to win the Stanley Cup. But I've been having a blast with hockey. I'm in three or four hockey leagues. It's helped that my teams are off to pretty good starts. I have this one team and nobody wants to hear about my fantasy hockey team, but it doesn't have any superstars on it, but it has a lot of very good players on it. And that's my favorite. I know it's great to own Mike Trout and everything, but I this is something to me when I can beat somebody or be successful with a team of just really good depth those are always my favorite types of fantasy teams. So I have one hockey team that's it's got a bunch of Mark Stones on it. It's got a bunch of Dustin Browns on it, and and Tyson Barry, and you know really you Darcy K- Kemper, you have good players, but guys who aren't going to win major awards. And it's because of the depth of that team that I'm doing so well. I, for some reason, I find that very satisfying.
0: It certainly is. It's a it's a good way to win a league having a bunch of good guys who play well and no big huge superstars. It's never happened for me personally, I've always had a, you know, Robbie Alomar or Paul Molitor or somebody like that to going back a few years. Uh, let's wrap up. Scott, uh, I like to end these discussions with boons and Baines. These are players you think will help their fantasy teams or hurt them. We'll start with the boons. These guys are going to be valuable to their fantasy managers this year. Let's start in the American League with a Boone hitter.
1: I'll try to give you multiple names, and I'll be as quick as I can. A lot, a lot of people in labor didn't like my Cave and Biggio pick. I, th- I think in the Steve Gardner USA Today release, Biggio was listed as a as a bust by three different teams. Uh, and I wouldn't be surprised if Joe uh, said something negative about Biggio too because I know he doesn't like him. But Biggio's never been caught on a stolen base attempt, 20 for 20 for his career. I think that represents the potential for more stolen bases. He's got a strike zone judgment profile that, to me, Means that he could definitely hit for a 20 or 30 point higher batting average. I know he does strike out a fair amount. And his position eligibility, you know, three positions in most leagues, certainly in Yahoo leagues. I, I want a lot of those guys, if this could be a COVID uncertain season with games getting canceled, I want to have a, a fluid roster where I'm almost playing positionless offense. I can just use the best player. I'm in on Kevin Biggio. Marcus Simeon, give him a pass, big park two lousy months, but you know now he goes to Toronto, wherever they wind up playing, it's going to be a better fit for him than Oakland. And he's still somebody who can fit all five categories, fill all five categories. I think he's been discounted. I will take that discount. Uh, and Robbie Grossman the a really cheap outfielder for you. He'll bat lead off in Detroit. He'll play against all kinds of pitching. He'll give you double-digit home runs and strikeouts. And because the Tigers are terrible and Grossman's kind of been a journeyman, I think you're getting like a four or five-round discount on this guy.
0: In the National League, a boon hitter or hitters?
1: Uh, Tommy Lastella, anytime you see a guy with more walks and strikeouts, I'm excited. And that San Francisco Park was actually favorable last year. I'm, I hope they keep those archways closed. I think that's a really smart ad for them. If the Reds leave Jesse Winker alone, I think he could go 280, 30 100. He just needs this team to give him a little bit of leash. I, I would love it if they bring the DH back because that would help Winker, but I'm going to draft him even if they don't. I keep seeing Gansby Swanson on breakout lists. I think his breakout already happened dominant first half in 2019 and then last year he was on pace for 132 runs, 27 homers, 94 RBIs and 13 and a half steals. He, he's already really good and he, you know the first round pedigree, he was a top 5 prospect not that long ago. Maybe it's the depth of the shortstop position that has him maybe a round or two cheaper than he should be, but I will be proactive trying to get some Swanson on my team.
0: I want to get a guy who can get a half a stolen base. I think it could really be Yeah, here you go. In the American League, over to the mound, who's a boon pitcher?
1: I talked about Bassett. He's a boring efficiency player, and that's my jam. And I think Greg Holland is a really good source for cheap saves because, again, what's Kansas City's objective? They want Holland to have maybe 12 to 15 saves, and they'll probably want to trade him when the deadline comes. You may not get a full season out of Holland, but he's been an affordable saves guy the last couple of years. I see no reason why that's going to change.
0: And in the National League, Boone pitchers.
1: Jack Flaherty, um, final sixteen starts of 2019. His area was below one. His WHIP was I think .70, hundred and thirty strikeouts. I give him a pass for last year. I, I think he's a, a nice Cy Young, somebody who I'd be willing to bet on the Cy Young market. His price is pretty good, and in some leagues he may go in the third round, which is great. I would take him anytime in the second round in most of my leagues. Kyle Hendricks. Is he a strikeout guy by percentage? No. Is he a strikeout guy by K per nine? No. But he throws strikes. He gets deep into games, and so he'll get he'll be more valuable in strikeouts than you intuitively think because he's just pitching to more batters. I also like that he's really smart. It seems like I think Bill James said that the better pitchers tended to be smarter, and I don't know if that's true or not. I'm not even sure that James said that, but I always like getting behind the smart pitcher. So, Cal Hendricks, we we need to appreciate that going deep in a game is a very important fantasy skill at this time of the this time of uh, where the game is.
0: Scott Pianowski's boons, Kevin Biggio and Marcus Semien of Toronto, Robbie Grossman in Detroit, Tommy Lastella of San Francisco, Jesse Winker of Cincinnati, Dansby Swanson in Atlanta, Chris Bassett of Oakland, Greg Holland of Kansas City, Jack Flaherty of St. Louis, Kyle Hendricks of the Cubs. Let's move on to the bane. Scott, players you think have a good chance of disappointing their fantasy managers this season. Once again to the American League, who's a bane hitter?
1: Elvis Andrews, what a weird move for Oakland. In his 30s, um, his sprint speed is cratering, so I don't know how much longer we can bank on stolen bases. And although this is another G McCaffrey gem, although Andrews had better strike zone judgment last year, his average collapsed, which is, I think, what a skills deterioration looks like. You can throw the ball over the plate and get Elvis Andrews out. He's not exactly expensive, but I really think he's undraftable at any price because there's so many short steps I do like. Kyle Tucker, the only thing that bothers me about him is he's a wonderful player, but I think he's like Guerrero. He's being drafted for what he could become, what he could develop into, and not what he is right now. I think the nervous that makes me nervous to play that way. Why isn't Carlos Correa already a star? I know he looked great in the playoffs, but doesn't run. Batting average has been okay, but not great. He's had major injuries in three of the last four seasons to the point that I think we have to price it in with him. Because I like so many shortstops, I see as proactive picks, I'm not going to talk myself into somebody, so I'm not going to talk myself into Correa.
0: In the National League, how about a bane hitter or two?
1: Uh, Real Muto, J2 Real Muto. I know he's dinged up now, which may save owners from themselves, but I think position scarcity is overrated. I think the catcher pool in the top 10 is actually better than people realize. And Real Muto's going at third-round labor. I, I love Jeff Erickson. I never would have done that even in a two-catcher format. Um he should be, he's going, I think, 20 to 30 picks earlier than he makes sense. Uh, Jonathan VR doesn't make sense for the Mets for me. He can play all different places, but I'm afraid he could be like a 240, 290, 360 type of guy. Um, and it's not like he's a plus defender, at least not that I I don't think he is. So yeah, he's, he's a nice guy. They can play him three or four days a week. I don't think he'll play anywhere near every day. And right now his ADP is around 160. I i Man, I'd have to get such a cheaper price than that before I'd even think about
0: Jonathan VR. Over to the mound again, an American League pitcher who could be a Bane.
1: I love Ryan Boomfield, Baseball HQ, one one of the smartest guys I know, but I was surprised he took a Chapman in the fifth round. This is a reliever who hasn't gotten to 60 innings since 2015. You're just inheriting inevitable stress with a Chapman when you take him. And I think the market started to back off on saves. You can get them more on a budget now because... People don't want to, they, they realize there's this more safe striation and, and a lot of teams are going to divvy the saves up to multiple guys. The Yankees will, of course, go to Chapman when he's healthy, but I can't see him being healthy all year. I think Zach Britton's a wonderful value pick you can get later. He'll probably get seven and 10 saves, maybe more if Chapman breaks again. But the Astros aren't always right. Jose Urquidy last year, the strikeouts fell down. His expected ERA was almost double his actual ERA. I think he's been a player people have been excited about, but I did not like anything I saw from him last year, although his front door stats were good. I, I think he could easily collapse this season.
0: And finally, being pitchers in the national.
1: Uh, we talked about Devin Williams earlier. Just find the next Devin Williams or the next version of him. Maybe he won't be quite as good. I don't pay for the expected repeat of what he did or similar repeat to what he did. And I, I hate to say this about Adam Wayne, right? One of my favorite pitchers. I, I love that curveball he threw to to Beltran in the, in the playoffs that year. But he significantly outpitched his component stats. He, he's 39 now. I, I think his ERA is more likely to be over five than it is to be under four. Uh, he's also one of my favorite trivia answers. He has the most envy, uh, the most Cy Young shares of anybody who's never won the award. I realize I, I didn't ask the question in a way that you could have fun with it, but maybe you can win some bar bets back when we actually have bars and bar bets again. Maybe you can get some people on that. But uh, I'm a little bit nervous to to draft Wainwright this time.
0: Do you think Google helped or hurt the bar bet business?
1: Oh, sure. I had to hurt it, Um, you know, because it's just too easy to look up
0: answers. I think it might have sneakily helped because people know that they can get an honest answer at the end. uh, Back in my day when I was making a lot of bar bets, Uh, you know, you'd say, uh, you know, who threw the the ball that Hank Aaron hit for his major league record setting home run. And everybody says, if they think they know, Al Downing, Al well, Downing yeah. it's not right, right. It was whoever threw the pitch that he hit for his 755th home run, which is the, the record. And nowadays people can check that with Google. So there's a, if maybe not as many bets, fewer fistfights resulting from right. <laughs>
1: right, You well, I used to be, I think you, you have a newspaper background too. I I remember, I I remember being in the newsroom and people would call up and literally say, Hey, can you settle a bet? Yeah, and they would consider you the authority at the paper for one of two reasons: either they thought you knew the answer, or they knew that you had the reference books. Back before the internet, which is the greatest reference book in the world now, the internet, I, I had all the I had all the baseball encyclopedias, I had all the old books that had stats and ledgers, and you know I would carry that from house to house and location to location. And it's with much, much sadness that those books have become in boxes now that never get looked at. I've even thrown a few of them out. Yep. Breaks my heart because I love reference books, but the internet is the most incredible reference book there is. I mean, I, I spend time on baseball reference and fan graphs and, and baseball savant every day. It's one of my favorite things to do. And a lot of times just looking up stuff for fun.
0: Yeah, I started throwing them away because the choice was between breaking my heart and breaking my back when I was moving them. So uh, uh-huh. yeah, I could live with the metaphorical pain a little more than the than the actual pain. Uh, Scott Pianowski's Baines, Elvis Andrews of Oakland, Kyle Tucker and Carlos Correa of Houston, JT Realmuto of Philadelphia, Jonathan Villar of the Mets, plays every position, none of them well, as the old joke goes. Uh, our oldest Chapman of the Yankees, Jose Urquidy of Houston, who was Joe Sheehan's boon pitcher for this year and the national league uh devon williams of milwaukee adam wainwright of st louis it's been great scott a lot of fun tell our listeners where they can keep up with scott pianowski
1: also remember when i disagree with joe Shane, you should probably bet on sheehan probably true with silver too so i'm throwing those disclaimers out there but yahoo sports uh scott underscore pianowski and um know excited about another uh we have a bunch of of fantasy baseball content coming to get you ready for your draft so um, hang out with us there
0: all right scott thanks very much for helping us out we will catch up with you again during the year this was a lot of fun thanks patrick scott Pianowski covers fantasy baseball and other sports at yahoo sports And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Tuesday, February 23rd. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 7 of the 2021 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guests for this Two Tout Tuesday edition. Joe Sheehan from the Joe Sheehan Baseball Newsletter and Scott Pianowski from Yahoo Sports. Joe's a really great baseball writer thoughtful, knowledgeable, and controversial without being a hot takes artist. My kind of guy. Scott is a man for all sports, and good luck for us that fantasy baseball is one of them. I'm Patrick Davitt, the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I sure hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Remember, you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. You can also follow my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio. Take a second to go to Stitcher, or Pocket Cast, iTunes, wherever you catch your pods, and leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a rating. It really does help us find new listeners, and that helps us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again Friday with another Friday News and Notes edition featuring our League Watch News Reports, an HQ Spotlight with Bullpens columnist Doug Dennis, and our HQ commentaries. That's coming up Friday on the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. It's so long.
2: Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.